Yes. Now we turn to the story of a University of California scientist who discovered that a popular herbicide may have harmful effects on the endocrine system. Tyrone Hayes was first hired in 1997 by a company that later became agribusiness giant Syngenta. They asked him to study their, prod their product, atrazine, a pesticide that is applied to more than half the corn crops in the United States and widely used on golf courses and Christmas tree farms. But after Hayes found results that the, the manufacturer did not expect, that atrazine causes sexual abnormalities in frogs and could cause the same problems for humans, Syngenta refused to allow him to publish his work. This was the start of an epic feud between the scientist and the corporation. Now, a new article in The New Yorker magazine uses court documents from a class-action lawsuit against Syngenta to show how it sought to prevent the Environmental Protection Agency from banning the profitable chemical, which is already banned by the European Union. To start with, the company's public relations team drafted a list of four goals. Reporter Rachel Aviv writes, quote, the first was, quote, discredit Hayes. In a spiral-bound notebook, Syngenta's communications manager, Sherry Ford, who referred to Hayes by his initials, wrote that the company could prevent citing of TH data by revealing him as non-credible. He was a frequent topic of conversation at company meetings. Syngenta looked for ways to exploit Hayes' false problems. If TH involved in scandal, Enviros will drop him, Ford wrote. Well, for more, we're joined by TH himself. That's right. Tyrone Hayes is with us, professor of integrative biology at the University of California, Berkeley, joining us from the campus TV station right now in Berkeley. Welcome to Democracy Now! Um, can you tell us what happened to you, how you were originally tied to Syngenta, the research you did, and what prevented you from originally publishing it? Well, <clears throat> here at Berkeley, I was a, a new assistant professor. I was already studying the effects of hormones and the effects of chemicals that interfere with hormones on amphibian development. And I was approached by the manufacturer and asked to study the effects of atrazine, uh, the herbicide, on frogs. And after I discovered that it interfered with male development and caused uh, males to turn into females to develop eggs, the company tried to prevent me from publishing and from discussing that work with other scientists outside of their panel. What was the process within the company, as you raised the, your findings? Uh, what was their immediate reaction uh, to, uh, to what you had come across? Well, initially, they seemed uh, sort of supportive. Um, we, you know, we designed more studies, we designed more analysis, and they encouraged me to do more analysis. But as the further analysis uh, just supported the original finding, they became less interested in moving forward very quickly. And eventually, they moved to asking me to manipulate data or to rep misrepresent data. And ultimately, they told me I could not publish or could not talk about the data outside of their closed panel. And, uh, Professor Hayes, talk about exactly what you found. What were the abnormalities you found in frogs, the gender-bending nature of uh, this drug, mm -hmm. atrazine? Well, initially, we found that the larynx or the voice box in exposed males didn't grow properly. And this was an indication that the male hormone testosterone was not being produced at, at appropriate levels. And eventually, we found that not only did were these males demasculinized or chemically castrated, but they also were starting to develop ovaries or starting to develop eggs. And eventually, we discovered that these males 
didn't breed properly, uh, that some of the males actually completely turned into females. So we had genetic males that were laying eggs and reproducing as females. And now we're starting to show that some of these males actually show, um, I guess, what, what we call homosexual behavior. They actually prefer to mate with other males. And so where did you go with your research? Uh, well, eventually what happened was the EPA uh, insisted that uh, the Environmental Protection Agency insisted that the manufacturer release me from the confidentiality contract. And we published our findings in pretty high-ranking journals, such as Proceedings to the National Academy of Sciences. We published some work in uh, Nature. We published work in Environmental Health Perspectives, which is a journal sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. And when did you begin to get a sense that the company was organizing a campaign uh, against you? What were the signs that you saw uh, uh, post the, the period when you be, uh, published your findings? Uh, before we published the findings and before the EPA became involved, the company tried to purchase the data. They tried to give me a new contract so that they would then control the data and the experiments. They actually tried to get me to come and visit the company to get control of those data. And when I refused, I invited them to the university. I offered to share data, but they wanted to purchase the data. And then they actually, <clears throat> as mentioned in a New York article, they actually hired scientists to try to refute the data or to pick apart the data, and eventually they hired scientists to do experiments that they claim refuted our data, and and then that escalated to the company actually, Tim Pasteur in particular, um, and others from the company coming to presentations that or lectures that I was giving to um, make handouts or to stand up and refute the data, and eventually it even led to things like threats of violence. Um, Tim Pasteur, for example, before I would give a talk, would, uh, would literally threaten, whisper in my ear that he could have me lynched, or he would quote, said he would send some of his good old boys to show me what it's like to be gay, or he, at one point he threatened my wife and my daughter with, with sexual violence. Uh, he would whisper things like, your wife's at home alone right now. How do you know I haven't sent somebody there to take care of her? Isn't your daughter there? So eventually it really slipped into some, you know, pretty, pretty scary tactics. Um, so what did you do? I mean, you're actually—I mean, this is very serious. You could bring criminal charges if you're being threatened and stalked in this way. Well, uh, initially, I went to my vice chancellor here at the university. I went to my dean. I went to legal counsel here at the university. And I was told by legal counsel that—well, I was told, first of all, by the vice chancellor for research at the time, that, well, you published the work, it's over, so I don't understand what the problem is. And I tried to impress upon her, uh, Beth Burnside at the time, that— you know, that it, that it wasn't over, that I was really being pursued by, by the manufacturer. And eventually, uh, when I spoke with the lawyer here at the university, I was told that, well, I represent the university and I protect the university from liability. You're kind of on your own. And, and I remember I looked at him and I said, but the very university from the Latin universitas is a collection of scholars, of teachers and, and students. So who is this entity, the university that you represent that doesn't include me? But clearly there's some entity that, that, that doesn't really include us, the professors. As we wrap up, what's happening with atrazine today? Where does it stand? It's still on the market. Uh, we're still studying it. Um, a number of studies are still coming out from around the world. One recent study has shown that male babies that are exposed in utero to atrazine, their genitals don't develop properly. Their penis doesn't develop properly, or they get microphallus. There are studies showing that sperm count goes down when you're exposed to atrazine. And this is not just laboratory animals or animals in the wild. This is also humans. We use the same hormones that animals do for our reproduction, and it's a big threat to environmental health and public health.
Microphallus, context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, December 9, 2021. So I have been told uh, this is our weekly book club, our fifth and final. It sounds odd to be saying it that way, but the book is not that long. So fifth and final installment on Shauna Swan's Count Down. Uh, the audio segment that we heard at the beginning, that is my BFF Amy Goodman, uh, Democracy Now! from way back in 2014. I will make sure to pause uh, at the Cows Yoga Retreat 2019. Uh, we were down in Florida. Young academic mentioned Dr. Tyrone Hayes, his research on frogs and how the chemicals, poisons, uh, can have them engaging in homosexual activity and turn male frogs into female frogs. And they first they were males, now they're laying eggs and all this other activity that you just heard from Dr. Hayes. A uh, young academic said way back in 2019, like, you should see if you can get Dr. Hayes on the program. I did invite, reached out and emailed him. I didn't hear back, but I did follow up. You know, we are not... Uh, loved in the world at any rate I thought it was amazing what he shared not only about the chemical impact on the frogs and how the same impact we have the same hormones uh, same hormonal process so it would have the same impact on human beings but also the threat did you hear what they said he said he reported the white people these giant companies Sagenta apparently said hey you want to you want to see what it's like to be gay sounds like they're threatening to come sodomize him rape a black male what you know your wife's home alone sound like they're threatening to go rape her too racist white culture that's the boy scouts that's jerry sandusky that's the catholic church like you just go on and on and on daniel holtzclaw jeffrey epstein rape culture but what what is that you're going to report that our chemicals are killing the, or not killing the frogs, but turning the male frogs into females and all the rest. And maybe it's doing that to, to people as well. You try and report this and we'll come rape you and your family. Amazing. Uh, he commented that these uh, chemicals, astrazine and all the rest, that they're still out on the market. And I'm sure that has not changed since this interview in 2014. But wow, I'm so glad we're reading this book. All I can say is, well, Microphallus that sounds so much like white genetic annihilation. I would love to hear what Dr. Francis Cress Welsing had to say about all of this. When I heard all of that last week about some of the impact, adverse impacts could be microphallus in addition to fertility problems and difficulty conceiving, or you might be sterile and all the rest of it, uh, or in, unable to conceive. I thought, wow. Is this deliberate? I know she used that word unwittingly last week, Shauna Swan, Ph.D. And I said last week, I don't know. This doesn't sound unwittingly to me. If Could that be consciously, subconsciously motivated, like afraid of the melanated phallus? White genetic annihilation must do something to attack genitals, microphallus. Maybe I'm just being wacky. The holidays got me. We will get started. Fifth and final 
full title is Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. Audio Segment 1 The Future Fallout Potential All of these societal shifts should make us wonder... Who's going to run the show in the future if not enough children are being born to support the world that we've built? Who will take care of our older adults? What does this mean for the fate of the human race? Whether it's because fewer males are born or women outlive men, the ratio of women to men will continue to increase as part of the demographic shift, and an older population will be composed largely of women. And if the decline in sperm levels really is occurring at a faster rate in Western countries than in developing countries, as the current data suggest, there will be socioeconomic shifts throughout the world. The world's population is in flux on multiple levels, and this much uncertainty is unnerving for the future of social support programs, economic stability, national and international planning decisions, and other factors that are fundamental to a country's ability to operate efficiently. These shifts can affect the functionality of individual countries, as well as population shifts on the global stage. In 1950, high-income regions in Central and Eastern Europe and Central Asia accounted for 35% of the world's population. In 2017, the populations in these countries constituted 20% of the world's population. Meanwhile, large population increases occurred in South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean, North Africa, and the Middle East, as the Global Burden of Disease study found. When these trends are considered along with declining sperm counts, there's even more cause for concern. Not only are men becoming endangered, but the human race as a whole is, too. Even if the will is there to reproduce and increase the birth rate, the machinery isn't as functional as it used to be for men or women. We have declining sperm counts, diminished ovarian reserves, increasing miscarriage rates, and other reproduction-related problems that can hamper success in the realm of baby-making. Some scientists are now suggesting that the detrimental effects on human reproduction and the underlying factors contributing to them could threaten the survival of the human race. It seems hard to fathom, but an argument could be made that Homo sapiens already fit the standard for an endangered species based on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's FWS requirements. Of five possible criteria for what makes a species endangered, only one needs to be met. The current state of affairs for humans meets at least three. The first is that we are arguably experiencing destruction, modification, or curtailment of our habitat. Our habitat includes our air, food, and water, each of which is being contaminated by pesticides, plasticizers, perfluorooctanoic acids, PFOAs, and other toxins that threaten human health and longevity. Nearly 25% of deaths worldwide, which adds up to 12.6 million deaths every year, are linked to environmental issues, according to the World Health Organization. 
The second FWS criterion met is that we have an inadequacy of existing regulatory mechanisms, given that our regulatory process assumes that most chemicals used in products are safe until they are proven to cause harm to humans, and also given that the testing methods behind these regulations are archaic. And the third FSW standard we're meeting is that there are other man-made factors affecting our continued existence, including sharp increases in global temperatures. Presumably, you're familiar with the list of problems arising from climate change. What you may not know, it's suspected that global warming also contributes to decreasing sperm counts. In one study of semen quality in four European cities, sperm counts were 40% lower in the summer than in the winter. This much is clear. Already, many populations aren't replacing themselves, sex ratios are changing, and marriage rates are going down, which creates a potential recipe for social and economic discordance, the likes of which we've never seen. As climate change and environmental pollution persist, the ratio of male-to-female babies that are born will likely decrease further, and the proportion of adults over age 65 will continue to overshadow the under-15 crowd. It's hard to know what the future will look like for societies around the world. Part 4 What We Can Do About This 11. A Personal Protection Plan Cleaning up our harmful habits. American entrepreneur and motivational speaker Jim Rohn famously advised, take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. That's absolutely true, of course, and only you can give your body the care it needs from both the inside and the outside. As you've seen, Lifestyle practices can affect reproductive health and functionality for both men and women, for better or worse. Some of the negative effects are reversible, others aren't, and the worst offenders are sometimes different for men and women. If women want to have a baby, they are often told, clean up your act, but it's probably even more important for men to do so. For example, if you're a man, it's wise to steer clear of the hot tub, steam room, or sauna after your gym workouts, especially if you're trying to conceive, since exposure to intense heat can take a toll on sperm count and quality. This effect is often reversible if men start avoiding these hot environments. In some instances, women can also restore some of their reproductive health and functionality that was taken away by harmful habits. But if a woman's unhealthy lifestyle habits have gone so far as to harm her eggs, the damage is done and cannot be reversed. Given what you read in Chapter 6, you might think you need to start leading a monk-like existence for the sake of your reproductive health and fertility, but there's no need to take clean living to such an extreme. If you lead a generally wholesome lifestyle, you'll help safeguard your fertility and reproductive health over time. The good news is, when it comes to lifestyle factors, an easy rule is what's good for your heart, mind, and immune system is also beneficial for your reproductive capacities. Fortunately, the health protective strategies that are widely recommended for your overall health will also help protect your reproductive health. 
While it can be challenging to improve your eating and exercise habits, particularly when life is hectic, do your best to follow these guidelines without letting perfect become the enemy of good. The goal is to eliminate the unhealthiest of lifestyle practices and to develop healthier habits in other areas. Here's how. Steer clear of cigarette smoke. If you smoke, quit. It's that simple. Smoking cigarettes is toxic to a man's sperm, and the chemicals in cigarettes, including nicotine, cyanide, and carbon monoxide, are toxic to a woman's eggs and speed up the rate at which those eggs die off. Even if you don't smoke, being around secondhand smoke, aka passive smoking, could affect your reproductive health. This is especially true for women. So if someone in your household smokes, urge that person to quit or at least ban smoking inside your home. Strive to maintain a healthy weight. That means a body mass index, BMI, between 20 and 25. As you've read, being substantially overweight or underweight has a negative effect on sperm quality, with obesity, a BMI of 30 or higher, being even more detrimental given its associations with lower sperm count, concentration, and volume, decreased sperm motility, and a higher incidence of shape abnormalities. Similarly, being considerably overweight or underweight, having a BMI under 18.5, can wreak havoc with a woman's hormone levels, causing irregular menstrual cycles or problems with ovulation or implantation of a fetus, and increase the risk of miscarriage if she is able to get pregnant. If you're overweight or obese, make an effort to slim down by reducing your food, calorie intake, and increasing your calorie expenditure through exercise. Taking these steps to shed excess weight can make a difference if you're trying to get pregnant. Study after study has found that when overweight or obese women who are seeking fertility treatment adhere to a reduced calorie diet and regular aerobic exercise, their pregnancy prospects can improve, in one study by 59%. Similarly, if underweight women gain weight or cut back on excessive exercise, in some cases their menstrual cycles may normalize, which will enhance their reproductive health. Upgrade your diet. There's a sign I've seen several times that notes, the key to eating healthy? Avoid any food that has a TV commercial. It's sound advice, because foods that aren't usually advertised on TV, such as apples and broccoli, or that don't have ingredients lists, are generally more nutritious, and hence better for your overall health, than are packaged foods. There's the added benefit of avoiding chemicals that are inherent in the packaging, as you'll see in the next chapter. People often want to know if there's a fertility-enhancing diet. The answer is, not exactly, but there's one that's close. Women who consume a Mediterranean-style diet, which emphasizes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, potatoes, herbs, spices, fish, seafood, skinless poultry, and extra virgin olive oil have been found to have a 44% lower chance of having difficulty getting pregnant. 
Research from the Netherlands found that couples who followed a Mediterranean diet before undergoing IVF-slash-ICSI treatment had a 40% higher likelihood of achieving pregnancy than couples who adhered to other dietary patterns. What's more, research suggests that adherence to this kind of healthy diet is associated with better sperm quality in men and better fertility in women. An added perk? It can also help with weight management and promoting overall health. It doesn't take long for a diet upgrade to make a difference in sperm. A 2019 study from Sweden found that after young, healthy men started following a wholesome diet with yogurt, whole grain cereal, fruits, vegetables, nuts, eggs, and the like, their sperm motility increased after just one week. Meanwhile, a higher intake of monounsaturated fats from olive oil, avocados, and certain nuts has been found to be associated with higher sperm concentration and total sperm count. A high intake of omega-3 fatty acids has also been linked with improved semen quality and reproductive hormone levels in men, as well as a reduced risk of ovulatory problems and improved fertility in women. The potential hitch is that some sources of fish and seafood are high in mercury, which is a concern for the fetus's developing brain in utero. To avoid mercury in seafood, put king mackerel, marlin, orange roughy, shark, swordfish, and tilefish on your no-buy list. Stick with wild salmon, sardines, mussels, rainbow trout, and Atlantic mackerel. Compelling research suggests that vitamin D may be emerging as a major player in reproductive health. It's been shown to improve male fertility potential, mostly by having a positive effect on sperm motility. And it's been found to improve sexual function and satisfaction among women with problems in that arena. In addition, vitamin D deficiency has been found to be much higher among subfertile women, which is why optimization through diet and possibly supplements is recommended. Keep moving. Besides helping you manage your weight and stay fit, regular aerobic exercise and strength training workouts are beneficial for your reproductive function. It's true whether you're a man or a woman. Physical activity is beneficial for the production and virility of sperm, as well as being healthy for the rest of a man's body. In the Rochester Young Men's Study, we found that healthy young men who engaged in regular, moderate to vigorous physical activity and watched less TV had higher sperm counts and sperm concentrations than less active men did. The most startling finding? Men who performed moderate to vigorous exercise for 15 or more hours per week had a 73% higher sperm concentration than those who got the least amount of exercise. Admittedly, that's a lot of exercise, slightly more than two hours per day, which is prohibitive for many guys who have busy work schedules. Fortunately, this isn't an all-or-nothing proposition, because other research suggests that men who get more than seven hours per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity have 43% higher sperm concentrations than those who exercise an hour or less per week. More recently, 
A study of potential sperm donors in China found that men with the highest levels of moderate to vigorous physical activity have significantly higher sperm motility. More good news. Men who aren't currently in the exercise habit should take heart because it's not too late to start. Research has found that when men who were sedentary and obese took up exercising at a moderate intensity on a treadmill for 35 to 50 minutes, three times per week, their sperm count, motility, and morphology improved after 16 weeks. That's a relatively short-term investment in fertility potential. The bottom line? Moderate exercise is a healthy source of physical stress, whereas excessive exercise tips the balance into overload territory. This is true for men, and the same golden mean, Aristotle's term, applies to women. Regular physical activity has been found to improve women's hormonal profiles and overall reproductive function, promoting regular menstrual cycles, ovulation, and fertility. Even overweight women who have experienced a prior pregnancy loss and are attempting another pregnancy benefit from walking for 10 or more minutes at a time. Their fertility improves significantly over six months. Get a grip on unhealthy stress. The goal is not to eliminate stress because, A, that simply isn't possible in the modern world, and B, some stress is actually good for you. Most people rarely think of stress as a positive thing, but a form called eustress is just that, positive, because it motivates us, challenges us, and helps us grow psychologically, emotionally, and physically. So we want to hold on to opportunities to create that good stress at work and in our personal lives. Moderate levels of positive stress don't adversely affect reproductive function for men or women, or how long it takes a woman to get pregnant. Instead, the goal is to minimize negative stress, aka distress, and or to improve your ability to manage it. Negative stress can take a toll on reproductive health, possibly leading to hormonal abnormalities, irregular periods, and ovulation problems in women, and the reduction of sperm quality in men, especially if the stress is excessive. You know the drill for preventing stress overload. Use good time management strategies, say no to non-essential requests, delegate responsibilities whenever possible, and develop good coping skills and a strong support network. Social support can counteract the potentially harmful effects of stress on both your mind and body. When researchers in China examined the effects of work stress on semen quality among 384 men, they found that men with high levels of work stress had a greater chance of having swimmers classified below the WHO's threshold for normal sperm concentration and total sperm count than those with low work stress. No surprise there. Here's where things get interesting. The men who had high work stress and high levels of social support had perfectly normal sperm. In addition to seeking social support, getting a grip on stress requires finding your personal decompression valve through meditation, deep breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, yoga, or hypnosis, and using it regularly. Besides helping you get the upper hand on anxiety and worry, 
These practices can improve your chances of maintaining normal reproductive hormone levels. Participating in a mindfulness-based intervention or a cognitive behavioral group program has been found to increase the chances of getting pregnant among women who are struggling with infertility. Research has found that doing diaphragmatic breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, and guided imagery twice a day improves sexual desire and satisfaction, factors that are often diminished by excessive stress in healthy young adults. Think of these steps as forms of stay healthy insurance for your reproductive health. Combine these with measures to reduce the chemical load and hence your exposure in your home as you'll see in the next chapter and you'll enhance your health even further. It's a multi-layered protection plan. 12. Reducing the chemical footprint in your home, making it a safer haven. Knowledge can be powerful, but it can also scare the daylights out of you. If what you now know about the perilous decline in sperm counts and impaired reproductive development in men and women has you nervously wondering if you've got enough ammunition in the arsenal, if you're a man, or worriedly caressing your belly, if you're an expectant mother, take heart. There are several things you can do to protect your reproductive function and the reproductive health of your future child. By taking key steps to improve your lifestyle and reduce your body's burden of chemical exposures, you'll enhance your ability to preserve sperm counts, sperm motility, and your fertility, whether you're a man or a woman. In 2010, I appeared on a 60 Minutes segment called Phthalates, Are They Safe?, in which Leslie Stahl and I walked room to room through a suburban home, and I pointed out where phthalates were likely to be hiding. It was an illuminating experience for her and for viewers, but by focusing on phthalates, we identified only a small percentage of environmental risks. Still, the room-by-room -room approach seemed useful, so I'm going to use it here to show you where endocrine-disrupting chemicals may be lurking in your home and how you can avoid them. The kitchen. It's often the hub of the home and one of the biggest sources of exposure to phthalates, BPA, and other endocrine-disrupting chemicals. After all, these sneaky chemicals can infiltrate foods and beverages at any point in their journey from farm to fork or from manufacturing plant to cup or bottle. Want proof? When German researchers compared phthalate levels in five adults before they fasted and 48 hours after they fasted, a time in which they consumed only water in glass bottles, they found that levels of testosterone-lowering DEHP and its more contemporary substitutes in the subject's urine dropped within 24 hours of the onset of the fast to just 10 to 20 percent of their initial levels. That's how quickly these sneaky chemicals can take up residence inside your body or leave it. To avoid numerous EDCs and other toxic chemicals in the kitchen, take the following steps. Buy organic produce whenever possible. Sometimes it's more expensive, sometimes it's not. But if it is, it may be worth the extra investment in your health so that you can avoid ingesting trace amounts of pesticides and the inert ingredients in pesticides, which include some phthalates. 
If you're not inclined to buy all organic fruits and vegetables, it's smart to eliminate those that typically contain the highest pesticide residues from conventional growing methods. Every year, the Environmental Working Group, EWG, www.ewg.org, a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting human health and the environment, releases a list of the fruits and vegetables with the highest and lowest pesticide residues, called the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15, respectively. In 2019, strawberries, spinach, kale, nectarines, apples, and grapes topped the most contaminated list, while avocados, sweet corn, pineapples, sweet peas, frozen, onions, and papayas were among the least contaminated. Purchase organic fruits and vegetables whenever you can, and when you can't, rinse your produce thoroughly with tap water, then dry it with a clean towel. This will remove most of the residual chemicals. You do not need a special produce wash. A study by researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, found that eating organically grown food for just one week significantly reduces the levels of 13 pesticide metabolites in the body. Choose fresh, unprocessed foods. Sticking with fresh foods, particularly fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds, and fish, will, besides being more nutritious than packaged foods, help you reduce your exposure to chemicals. During processing, packaged foods come in contact with phthalates, such as DEHP and DBP, or BPA in the plastic or lining of cans. And because these chemicals aren't bound to the packaging material, they can leach into the food. Even if the label says BPA-free or phthalate-free, it may contain substitutes such as BPS and BPF for BPA or phthalate substitutes that may be as toxic as the chemicals they're replacing. It's best to try to use fewer canned and packaged foods in general. Avoid contaminants in animal products. It's no secret that some commercially raised animals, particularly cattle and sheep, are fed hormones such as testosterone or estrogen to promote their growth or antibiotics to prevent diseases. The extent to which these hormones and drugs may affect human health when animal-based foods, including dairy products, are consumed is still hotly debated. But if you want to be on the safe side, you can look for those labeled with the USDA organic seal, which signifies that these animals have eaten only organically grown feed without animal byproducts, and weren't treated with synthetic hormones or antibiotics. Similarly, the phrases raised without antibiotics, raised without added hormones, or no synthetic hormones, mean the animal received no antibiotics or hormones during its lifetime. Reconsider your food storage containers. Phthalates and BPA are used in the manufacture of many food and beverage containers, you're exposed to these endocrine-disrupting chemicals when they seep into your foods or drinks, or they're released when these containers are heated in the microwave. Plastic containers that contain phthalates have the number 3 and V, or PVC, in the recycling symbol. BPA is still used in many water bottles and plastic containers, and in the epoxy resins that protect canned foods from contamination. For food storage, 
your best bet is to use glass, metal, or ceramic containers with tops or aluminum foil. If you do opt for plastic containers, use this rhyme to help you remember which recycling codes are safer and which aren't. Four, five, one, and two, all the rest are bad for you. Ban plastic from the microwave. If you want to reheat food, don't do it in a plastic container in the microwave. Transfer it to a plate or bowl, and if you need to cover it, use parchment paper, wax paper, a white paper towel, or a domed glass or ceramic container that fits over the plate or bowl. Don't microwave plastic food storage bags or plastic bags from the grocery store, even if the package is marked as safe for microwaving. Prepare meals at home as often as possible. Believe it or not, frequently dining out or getting takeout is associated with higher levels of phthalates in the body, thanks to food packaging materials or food handling gloves that are used. One study found that teenagers who ate out a lot had 55% higher levels of androgen-disrupting chemicals than their peers who only consumed food at home. Opt for home-cooked or home-assembled meals when you can. Upgrade your cookware. If you've been using nonstick pots and pans, it's time for a change. Nonstick cookware is made with PFOA, perfluorooctanoic acid compounds, or Teflon, a brand name for the chemical polytetrafluoroethylene. Sure, using nonstick cookware makes cleanup easier, but cooking on a heated nonstick surface gives endocrine disrupting chemicals ample opportunity to seep into your food. If you do continue using your nonstick cookware, only use it for short periods of time at medium-low heat and discard the potter pan if the surface becomes scratched or starts to give off flakes. In my home, we have switched to cast iron pots and pans, which we love. Stainless steel is another good alternative. Filter your drinking water. Even if you like the taste of your tap water and trust your water supplier, it's a good idea to buy a water filter for your home or fridge and remember to change it regularly. As you've seen, numerous industrial and agricultural chemicals can seep into the water supply, and so can pharmaceuticals, which aren't even monitored by your water supplier. So you really don't know the full extent of what you're drinking, and drinking bottled water isn't the solution because it comes in plastic. Invest in a water treatment system for your household, whether it's an inexpensive glass, not plastic, pitcher that you fill manually, an under-the-sink activated charcoal or reverse osmosis filtration system, or a whole house carbon filter that will remove contaminants from all the water that comes into your home. Consult NSF International, www.nsf.org, for more water filtration system information. If you want a portable water bottle, get a glass or stainless steel one. Clean up your cleaning products. Carpet shampoo, all-purpose household cleaners, window and wood cleaning products, disinfectants, stain removers, and most other cleaning products contain potent toxins and EDCs. Go through your arsenal of household cleaning products and get rid of those that feature words such as danger, warning, poison, or fatal on the label. Replace them with products that have ingredients you can identify. 
Here again, the Environmental Working Group is a helpful resource. HTTP colon forward slash forward slash www.ewg.org forward slash guides forward slash cleaners forward slash content forward slash top underscore products. Or you can make your own cleaning products using water, vinegar, baking soda, or essential oils. You can find DIY cleaner recipes online. The bathroom. After the kitchen, the bathroom may present the biggest opportunity in your home for exposure to EDCs and other potentially harmful chemicals. This is largely because of the cosmetics and other personal care products we use, but other issues come into play as well. Unfortunately, the cosmetic and beauty industry is poorly regulated, and many companies have label language or brand names that suggest the products are pure, natural, fresh, or otherwise wholesome. But these terms mean literally nothing from a legal or regulatory standpoint. This is especially true because the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, has far less authority over the cosmetics industry than it does the drug industry, and neither the FDA nor any other government body approves or regulates cosmetic products before they hit store shelves. Instead, cosmetic companies are responsible for substantiating the safety of their products and making sure they're labeled properly before they come on the market. All of which means the onus is on consumers to make smart, safe, or at least less harmful choices. To avoid numerous EDCs and other toxic chemicals in your bathrooms, take the following steps. Pay attention to the labels on personal care products. Sometimes what you'll see is pure marketing speak, but some phrases can be meaningful. Products that carry the USDA organic seal, for example, must contain at least 95% organically produced ingredients, meaning they've been grown without conventional pesticides, herbicides, petroleum-based fertilizers, or genetically modified organisms. The 100% organic label indicates that a product only contains organically produced ingredients. Sometimes what a product doesn't contain is trumpeted just as loudly, and this can be worth noting. Some examples? Fragrance-free means no perfumes or fragrances have been added to the cosmetic or toiletry. Instead, essential oils or botanical extracts that have scents may have been used to mask the smell of the basic ingredients. Similarly, paraben-free and phthalate-free indicate that these chemicals aren't in the product. Avoid cleansers and skincare products that are labeled antibacterial. Regular soap and water are all you need to get clean. Remember, too, a personal care product that's supposedly free of these bad actors can lose its integrity, its phthalate-free and BPA-free status, if it's in a plastic jar or bottle so choose products in glass whenever possible. Scan product ingredients lists. Admittedly, it may feel as though you need a chemistry degree to decipher what's in the products you're slathering on your skin, hair, or body. But you can make a modicum of sense of their ingredients lists. 
In particular, avoid products that contain the following EDCs or other harmful chemicals. Triclosan, often in liquid soap and toothpaste, dibutyl phthalate, or DBP, in hairspray and nail products, and parabens such as methyl, ethyl, propyl, isopropyl, butyl, and isobutyl paraben, preservatives found in shampoos, conditioners, facial and skin cleansers, moisturizers, deodorants, sunscreens, toothpastes, and makeup. To closely vet the personal care products you like, check out the Environmental Working Group's Skin Deep database for details. Taking these selective steps can make a difference. A study found that when teenage girls switched to using personal care products that were labeled as free of phthalates, parabens, triclosan, and benzophenone 3, an organic compound often found in sunscreens, their urinary concentrations of these potentially endocrine-disrupting chemicals decreased by 27 to 44 percent in just three days. Dispose of unused medications properly. Don't flush them down the toilet. Instead, mix them with coffee grounds or kitty litter, put them in a sealed plastic bag, and place it in the trash. An even better approach is to participate in a take-back program. Check the Drug Enforcement Administration's National Prescription Drug Take-Back Initiative's website. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.deadiversion.usdoj.gov forward slash drug underscore disposal forward slash takeback forward slash for twice per year collection dates and locations near you. At other times of the year, you may be able to find an independent pharmacy in your area that disposes of medications through the Dispose My Meds program, https colon forward slash forward slash disposemymeds.org forward slash. Ditch the vinyl shower curtain. You know that new shower curtain smell that comes with a fresh vinyl curtain or liner? It's a result of chemical off-gassing, a release of volatile organic compounds and phthalates into the air. It's not good for you. So choose an eco-friendly option made from cotton, linen, or hemp instead. Banish air fresheners. Whether you've been using a plug-in product, a wick, or a spray air freshener, stop. All of these contain phthalates and other potentially harmful chemicals. To improve air aroma in the bathroom, use an exhaust fan, open a window, or leave an open box of baking soda in the room to absorb bad odors. Also, stick with non-toxic cleaning products for the bathroom. Elsewhere in your home. A variety of chemicals may have taken up residence in other areas of your home, including your bedroom, living room, and closets. The primary offenders include phthalates, flame retardants, PBDEs, and PCBs, which still reside in many homes even though they're no longer manufactured. No one expects you to do a top-to-basement makeover of your home. That would be cost-prohibitive, but you can reduce the chemical load in your home considerably. Here's how. Remove wall-to-wall -wall carpet. Synthetic carpets, such as those made from nylon or polypropylene, can emit harmful chemicals into the air, 
another example of off-gassing, for many years. Natural hardwood and ceramic tile are better choices because they are the least likely to absorb dust and toxic chemicals. If you want to add an area rug, choose wool or natural plant materials such as jute or sisal. Avoid using a pad that contains PBDEs. Choose a wool or felt one instead. Also, steer clear of carpets or pads that have had water or stain-proofing treatments, which add harmful chemicals to the equation. Vacuum all carpets thoroughly using a machine with a HEPA filter at least once a week. Prevent dust buildup. Besides being an allergen and an unsightly nuisance, household dust can absorb and become a repository for toxic chemicals. There's no need to become an obsessive neat freak, but it's wise to elevate your dusting efforts in particular because household dust contains toxic chemicals from products in your home. A 2017 study found that 45 potentially harmful chemicals, including phthalates, phenols, replacement flame retardants, and perfluoroalkyl substances, PFASs, were found in dust in 90% of households sampled throughout the United States. So use a damp mop on wood or ceramic floors. Wipe furniture, windowsills, doorway moldings, and ceiling fans with a microfiber or damp cotton cloth because they hold dust particles better than others, or dry ones do. Dust electronic equipment, including TVs, frequently because they're a common source of flame retardants. Open the windows and doors while you're cleaning, and wash your hands thoroughly after dusting and cleaning. Upgrade your replacement purchases. If you're in the market for a new stereo or media system, choose electronics without PBDEs or other brominated flame retardants. If you're ready to buy a new couch, comfy chair, or mattress, choose those that are free of flame retardant chemicals, toxic adhesives, such as those containing formaldehyde, or plastics. If you can't replace older foam products that have ripped covers, Consider getting a cotton or linen slip cover to keep the surface intact. Choose natural wood tables and cabinets that are made without synthetic wood or particle board, and buy an organic cotton mattress pad, not one of the plastic barriers that will release their own chemicals into the air. Leave your shoes at the door. Besides tracking in dirt from outside, the soles of your shoes can bring in not only germs, but also heavy metals from soil and pesticide residues. Research has found that people and pets can bring weed killers and other pesticides that have been applied to lawns into homes up to a week after treatment. Consider having a dedicated pair of indoor shoes or slippers, and wipe off your pet's paws when he or she comes inside. Clean out your closets. Get rid of mothballs, which contain the toxic chemicals naphthalene or paradichlorobenzene. To protect your clothes from moths, use cedar chips or blocks or lavender sachets in your closet. If possible, choose green dry cleaning services or ones that use liquid carbon dioxide or wet cleaning methods. Otherwise, air out dry-cleaned clothes by removing the plastic and letting them hang for a day in your garage or on a porch before putting them in your closet. Say no to plastic bags. 
Invest in reusable cloth or canvas bags of various sizes and carry them with you or keep them in your car for shopping. Wash these regularly to keep them clean. The Playroom If you have young kids, be aware that toxic chemicals can be present in toys and other children's products. Even though several phthalates are banned in concentrations above 0.1% in children's toys and teething devices in the United States and the European Union, toys that are imported from other parts of the world often contain them. Children are especially vulnerable to the effects of endocrine-disrupting chemicals since their bodies are still developing. Plus, because their bodies are small, per pound of body weight they absorb more contaminants through their lungs, digestive tracts, and skin than adults do. And because young kids often put toys in their mouths, this can increase their exposure even more. Your best bet is to scrutinize your choices when purchasing toys or kids' activities. When buying plastic toys, look for those that are labeled phthalate-free and PVC-free. Similarly, buy baby bottles and sippy cups that are labeled BPA-free. Alert! This won't eliminate the BPA lookalikes such as BPS and BPF. When furnishing the playroom, include natural materials whenever possible. Choose wooden tables and chairs, with cushions if desired, and baskets, rather than plastic bins, to hold toys and art supplies. Keep in mind, Cotton fabrics and rugs are easy to clean and resist mold and mildew. Your yard. If you live in a house, you'll want to pay attention to the potential chemical consequences in the great outdoors, as in your lawn or garden, even if you don't have a green thumb. That means avoid using synthetic pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers. They're a hazard to kids and pets and to the rest of us. If you're desperate to get rid of weeds, do it safely by pulling them out at the roots, applying vinegar or salt to them, or by using a thick layer of mulch, such as cedar mulch or bark chips, to inhibit weed growth. Share your planet-friendly efforts and encourage others to follow your example by posting a pesticide-free sign on your grass or in your garden. Consider, too, that your old PVC garden hose may be delivering a heavy dose of lead, BPA, and phthalates, along with the water. It may be time for a replacement. Look for a PVC-free hose that's labeled phthalate-free, or even better, drinking water safe. These are among the most common culprits that can have insidious effects on sperm counts and other aspects of reproductive health for men and women. Given the expense involved, you may not be ready to get rid of carpets, couches, cookware, and other household items that contain some of these offensive chemicals, but when you're in the market for new ones, look for items that are free of phthalates, PFOAs, flame retardants, and other potentially toxic chemicals. In the meantime, get rid of mothballs, air fresheners, scented candles, antibacterial soaps, and other items that may pose a threat to sperm and your overall health. The Silent Spring Institute offers a free smartphone app called DetoxMe, which provides simple, evidence-based tips on how to reduce exposure to these chemicals in your home and a DetoxMe action kit.
a urine test that allows you to detect the presence of common household toxins in your body. Also, make it a point to avoid handling receipts, because most of these contain bisphenol A, which can be absorbed into your body. Think of these important steps as ways of committing to clean living, both inside and out. By improving your lifestyle habits, including your dietary choices and food preparation techniques, and by purging your home of harmful chemicals, you'll be taking smart precautionary measures to protect your reproductive system and your overall health. As you've seen, it's possible to reduce the chemical burden that's placed on your body, but it requires diligent efforts to learn to bob and weave through the minefield of disruptive chemical influences in our midst. This is your opportunity to protect your future and your families. 13. Envisioning a healthier future. What needs to be done? In 1898, UK factory inspector Lucy Dean warned of the harmful effects of exposure to asbestos dust, but her written report was largely ignored. More than a decade later, in 1911, experiments on rats raised reasonable grounds for suspicion that exposure to asbestos dust is harmful to the health of living creatures. Between 1935 and 1949, an alarming number of lung cancer cases were reported among asbestos manufacturing workers, and in 1955, research established a high risk for lung cancer among asbestos workers in Rochdale, in the UK. Between 1959 and 1964, mesothelioma cancer, which affects the tissue lining the lungs, was found to be a significant problem in asbestos manufacturing workers and people living in neighborhoods near factories that handled asbestos in South Africa, the UK, and the United States. Nevertheless, it took until 1973 for all forms of asbestos to be recognized as carcinogenic to humans, and until 1999 for many countries in Western Europe to ban the use of all types of asbestos. That's an entire century. But here's the real kicker. Unbeknownst to many people, the United States still permits some use of asbestos, and in some developing countries, such as India, the asbestos industry continues to boom. Even after major scientific and regulatory efforts, after more than 50 years have passed, we still haven't gotten this known carcinogen out of our environment. This story has little to do with reproductive health and plenty to do with respiratory health. But it's a powerful example of just how long it can take and how difficult it can be for important protective measures to be implemented. Given the approximately 85,000 chemicals that have been produced for use in commerce and the small number that have been tested for safety, let alone regulated, we need a better, meaning less time-consuming and less costly, way to identify and limit exposure to risky chemicals. As an example, Consider the testosterone-lowering phthalate, di-2-ethylexyl phthalate, DEHP. In 2000, John Brock, Ph.D., an environmental chemist, told me about a new effort at the CDC to measure phthalates in a sample of U.S. residents for the first time. When he suggested I study them, my reaction was, what are phthalates? 
He told me about some convincing studies showing that these everywhere chemicals were wreaking havoc on the genital tracts of male rats. Fast forward to 2005, when my colleagues and I published our study that showed that an expectant mother with higher DEHP levels in early pregnancy was more likely to have a son with less male-typical genitals. For example, a shorter anogenital distance, AGD, and a smaller penis. This study and those that followed have taken 20 years and cost more than 10 million federal dollars, but they've led to important public health action. The risk of the phthalate syndrome was believed to be so plausible that DEHP and two other testosterone-lowering phthalates were banned in toys and sippy cups in 2008. Because of this law and the public's concerns about these health risks, levels of the traditional phthalates in people's bodies dropped dramatically in the United States. The pregnant women we recruited into our 2010 study had DEHP levels that were only 50% of those measured in pregnant moms in 2000. This was definitely a positive sign. But sadly, other phthalates have been introduced as replacements for DEHP and similarly problematic phthalates. One of these was diisononyl phthalate, DINP. In a Swedish study, Expectant mothers who had higher levels of this new substitute phthalate in their urine were more likely to have a boy with a shorter AGD than women with low levels. So swapping DINP for DEHP had not solved the problem at all, which is incredibly frustrating. Let's pause for a moment and give manufacturers the benefit of the doubt. Let's imagine that maybe they didn't know that DINP was just as harmful as DEHP. Shouldn't they have done their due diligence and investigated the effects of this substitution before it was made? And shouldn't manufacturers have pulled this chemical from production as soon as it was discovered to be harmful? As you can probably guess, I would answer both questions with a resounding yes. But the worlds of chemistry and commerce don't always work this way. So far, this issue has been a victim of the politics of inattention, in which manufacturers have largely shirked responsibility for ensuring the safety of the chemicals in their products, and our regulatory system has allowed this to happen. As you undoubtedly know, some people profoundly distrust the safety of vaccines or fluoride in the water supply. I keep wondering, where are the people who are upset about the presence of harmful EDCs in everyday products? Where is the outrage on this issue? Frankly, I continue to be astonished that more public health experts and regular citizens aren't more upset about these harmful substances. It would undoubtedly help if they were. Because several things need to be done to significantly lessen the planetary burden of EDCs and make our future healthier. We need to design safer chemicals that don't interfere with the body's endocrine system, and we need to adopt testing methods including those that will identify detrimental effects of low doses and mixtures of chemicals that will protect us against EDCs. It's essential that regulators stop exempting, grandfathering in, chemicals that have been used for a long time. The goal of regulatory action must shift from damage control after a problem has been identified to anticipating risks before they occur and allowing chemicals to enter the market on that basis. In other words, 
We need to stop using each other and our unborn children as guinea pigs for EDC exposures. And we need legislation that requires industries and manufacturers to be held accountable for the risks that come from the chemicals they produce and release into the environment. Hmm. Accountable. There's that word again. All righty. Context of white supremacy. So we are almost done. We will have one section left and then the conclusion and all done with countdown. Uh, if you have commentary to share, the number to dial 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again. Seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The email until justice at gmail dot com. Let's get to one written report and then we'll get the callers. Let's see. Mm -mm 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 -mm. One of our investors, he wrote in. Greetings, Gus. Uh, chapter, chapter 11. Number one, avoid any food that has a TV commercial. Amen to that for sure. Number two, some stress is actually good for you. You stress. I am not sure I accept this. What is an example of good stress for non-white victims of racism, white supremacy? I'm going to have to get more information on this. Uh, one example of good stress that is not exercise based might be engaging in some form of counter racism it might be stressful to call into the cows so i've been told uh, it might be stressful to call mr fuller or call into his program to ask a question might be stressful to talk to other non-white people about victims of right uh, about racism white supremacy to speak to other uh, non-white people about that all of those things might be stressful to engage in counter racist activity with a white person. Suspected racist. Those might be examples of things that are stressful for non-white people that might be a quote unquote good form of stress. I could probably think of some others, but those are just a few. Uh, let's see. And feel free to let me know if that makes sense. Chapter 12. Uh, number one, environmental working group lists of fruits and vegetables with highest and lowest pesticide residues called the dirty dozen and the clean 15 plastic containers. Recycling codes are safer and which aren't four, five, one and two. All the rest are bad for you. 95% organically produced 100% organic label. Let's see. Lots of constructive information in this chapter, chapter 12, which I was not aware of. Still learning. That's all of us. Uh, next, 
for free smartphone app called Detox Me. I got this app after reading this. It seems constructive. Right on for that one. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Make sure we didn't. Did we get that far? Did we get that far? Let's see. Just making sure I don't get ahead of where we are in the text here. Let's see. Yes. All right. One more. Last one. And then we'll save the rest for the end of the text. He writes, number one, implementation of the precautionary principle shifts regulatory action from initiating damage control after a problem has been identified to taking anticipatory action before damage can occur. This was also mentioned in Harriet A. Washington's A Terrible Thing to Waste, a book club selection, top 10. A lot of this reminded me of some of the sections of uh, A Terrible Thing to Waste. I'll stop there and we'll check out the rest uh, once we complete the book. Until justice at gmail.com. Again, the email. Uh, let's see. We have folks who wrote in. Uh, on, on social media as we were rolling along with all this uh, said they're not able to listen in live listen in to the archives but the study session is very constructive I said the same thing that is VGQ or his uh, Twitter handle is VGQ hashtag VGQ hashtag RWSWJ hashtag B1 right on uh, let's see folks who dialed in if you have commentary to share launch should be open proceed hello greetings greetings Irie um hello everybody um I'm late I didn't hear a chapter, but I wanted to catch what I could um, since you're wrapping up. But somebody said that they didn't know any good stress for non-white people. So um, helping a friend of mine out that was sick with could be some things resulting from exposure, you know, from stuff talked about in the book, I discovered that um, exposure to cold, for a certain amount of time, puts a certain stress, doing air quotes, on the, I think they say the parasympathetic um, immune system to basically make autoimmune issues quiet down over time. And there are people that will immerse in ice baths to stress out the parasympathetic, um, like nervous system and immune system. And also I've heard that a certain type of helpful stress is going to sauna for like a, you know, a certain time as well. So I don't know if the author mentioned that, but that's what I know of. And I engage, oh my goodness, stop. I engage in, um, uh, sauna treatments or uh, sessions um, from time to time, and it does help with certain arthritic things or things that could have been arthritis that I've had. But as far as, like, 
as that pertains to what she wrote about so far in the book that I was able to hear, I don't know. But that's what I've heard outside of the book when it comes to healthy stress. I just wanted to, to say that. And it's worth looking into so you can get more information. And that's all. But, yeah, it's been a good, really good book. And I'm actually pondering and pondering if I could share this with the people who call themselves um, trans and LGBT because, like you said, Gus, if the issue is actually chemical exposures by a variety of means, I would think as well the call to action at any gathering for people who consider themselves homosexual would be an end to all um, food and environmental contamination. Which causes, which is causing the problem in the first place. Thank you. Much obliged, Irene. Um, I'd be inter- I would be interested because I feel like she is not uh, dogmatic, right? I feel like she's not judgmental in uh, presenting the information about these. And I mean, at the end of the day, it would just be the barometer is not how I feel about this. Do I like it? Does it make me uncomfortable? Is this true? That way, and she has, you know, references here. Is this true? Does exposure, what she mentioned, what we started the program off with today, Dr. Hayes and the frogs. Is this true? Exposure to these astrazine and these different chemicals we got a frog that's a male. Now he's laying eggs engaged in homosexual activity. Is this true? If it is, hmm. Microphallus, they said, hmm. It would be something to consider. So, yeah, I'd be very interested to see how they respond to the material, especially if they process and evaluate. Yeah, it seems the information that she's presenting is accurate. She's not lying. So what do we make of this? Uh, other folks who dialed in, much obliged, Irie. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. May I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, greetings, callers and uh, listeners. Um, and thanks again, Gus, for the platform. I think uh, this book is, I mean, I'm, I'm currently reading another book, um, a self-help book, um, in regards to 10 arguments for deleting your social media account. Um, really constructive information um, as well. And I was going to just focus on this book for the meantime and not jump from book to book. But once I heard one segment from a study session, I had to just keep on following. And um, this book is extremely important. Um, One of the frustrating things that I just listening to the last parts were just um, humans being an endangered species and i wonder is it humans in general or is it quote-unquote western society white people are they really inferring to when they say endangered species um the advice section is alone enough reason to purchase this book i have to admit or to get some way to get that information that advice section i couldn't even keep up with everything but i got as much as i could down um that being said, I, I really um thankful that I caught on to this. Uh, I will uh, mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, good sir. 
the advice section just practical information um yeah that alone is is worth getting and this is like a, a hot seller so this is a book that would probably be pretty easy to nab at your library or wherever probably enough copies sold that it'd probably be pretty easy to get a used copy of this one too um i think it sold pretty well but uh, yeah, readily available. I will encourage victims of racism to read. And it's not long. We're going to be done today. It's not even a book that, you know, you would have to invest six months and all the rest of reading. You could, you know, take your time and be done pretty quickly and have, I think, a lot of constructive tidbits that you could take from this book and apply, you know, for your health and well-being. Uh, star six one, if other folks have uh, thoughts to share, I will go through some of my notes let's see so we started in chapter 10 today kind of the end of chapter 10 she says oh buddy this was so important so she says this is in the subsection the future fallout potential fallout is like nuclear metaphor for uh, nuclear explosion and death right fallout shelters right uh, she says, uh, if the decline in sperm levels is really occurring at a faster rate in Western countries than in developing countries, i.e. non-white people, I think that's what that means, code for. As the current data suggests, there will be socioeconomic shifts throughout the world. I don't even know what that means. The term socioeconomic, I would suggest not using it. Uh, sometimes people will use that term as opposed to saying racism, white supremacy. And they'll say socioeconomic disadvantages and things of that nature. I don't even know what she means here in terms of uh, if and for the whole sentence, decline is happening at a faster rate in Western countries, meaning white people's fertility rates is dropping faster than in areas with non-white people. There will be socioeconomic shifts throughout the world. Again, what does that mean? What are the nature of these socioeconomic shifts? Is this moving us closer towards justice? Very vague. That's one. If I'm an editor, like, man, this should have been much more detail here. Uh, let's see. And then she goes from there. The world's population is in flux on multiple levels. And this much uncertainty is unnerving for the future of social support programs, economic stability and national and international planning decisions and other factors that are fundamental to a country's ability to operate efficiently the country is the white country in the system of white supremacy. All the rest that just borders that they, you know, play around with to confuse and maintain their system. Um, but yeah, I think all of that is, is so coded language to get through that. And white people are not mentioned explicitly. Race is not mentioned explicitly, but that's exactly what it sounds like it's talking about. Uh, let's see. She says, then she starts talking about specific population. Oh man, it gets so specific. Okay. She says, uh, these shifts can affect the functionality of individual countries as well as population shifts on the global stage. In 1950, high income regions in central and Eastern Europe and central Asia accounted for 35% of the world's population in 2017, the populations in these countries constituted 20% of the world's population. Now, just me, I don't think most of the people in this area would be classified as black. I know she said some parts of Central Asia and other areas, 
granted I'm sure everyone here is not a white person but I don't think you're going to have a huge population of really dark crystal black people I could be in error it continues meanwhile large population increases increases occurred in South Asia sub-Saharan Africa Latin America and the Caribbean North Africa and the Middle East as the global burden of disease study found I thought that was such an important uh, piece this is like the closest that we get to this is directly talking about racism this is like what I said when UNESCO they had their 2014 report about the area Nigeria they're going to have a billion people that's sub-Saharan Africa they're going to have a billion people 2100 less than 80 years from now a billion people just in Nigeria alone and I said when they reported that it was oh my god can we get some more Ebola what is going what are we going to do what are we going to do it wasn't oh my gosh this is awesome Nigeria taking front center front and center in the world it was oh my god oh just what we needed more Nigerians oh black people same type of tone that's the least my interpretation from this section like oh my god this is just the worst thing in the world and the fact that she didn't get this information from UNESCO she got this information as quoted from the global burden of disease study that is so like massive like I'm not thinking about this as a healthy constructive shift in population all of these diseased dark people reproducing with their high fertility rates oh sound almost like Lothrop Stoddard the rising tide of color against white world supremacy it continues when the trends are considered along with the declining sperm counts there's even more cause for concern not only are men becoming endangered but the human race as a whole to the person who called in and just said that what it just sounded like was a concern about the white race because she just said the populations are increasing in these areas with a lot of dark people so it's not that the human race is in peril it would be that the white race which is frequently one and the same human means white non-white means non-human man not man uh, woman not man not child not all of it uh, let's see next she talked about climate change uh, and that having an impact on sperm counts as well just reminded me here in Seattle we had three consecutive days of 100 degree weather in the city of Seattle including a 110 degree weather day back just a few months ago and they're still talking about the ramifications of all that extreme heat uh, and how it impacted the environment and the fish and all kinds of things probably people too uh, and more I think they already said that was the deadliest uh, weather event in the history of Washington State already uh, where they've had earthquakes and all kinds of things here I think there's an active volcano <laughs> that far from here and uh, that heat event this summer deadliest event in the history of Washington State uh, let's see next chapter oh the personal protection plan such an important chapter this is the one where people were talking about she gave out all the data um, I think it's so important I was not thinking this book talking so much emphasis on things that males can be doing should be doing ways that males are impacted 
by dropping fertility rates and things that males specifically can and can and should be doing to improve their health and sperm quality. I think that's so important. I just I don't think this is something that a lot of males information that they're exposed to, certainly not at a young age, certainly not black males. Uh, Next, let's see. Lifestyle. She said the good news is when it comes to lifestyle fact. Got disconnected for a moment. Make sure she says the good news is when it comes to lifestyle factors, an easy rule is that what's good for your heart, mind and immune system is also beneficial for your reproductive capacities. That is such, I thought, a powerful way to uh, think what's good for your heart, mind and immune system. Who even thinks about what's good for your immune system? Uh, steer clear of cigarette smoking. Uh, and then if you think about the world in which we live, uh, we've heard this from so many books already, Harriet A. Washington and not, uh, a terrible thing to waste, although it might be there too. But I think she talked about this in medical apartheid and promoting cigarettes where black people live. We've had a number of our guests who talked about this, Vernelia Randall too, the exact opposite where black people are. We want to heavily from and menthol cigarettes, you know tons of them as many as you can uh she says if you smoke quit it's that simple smoking cigarettes is toxic to a man's sperm and the chemicals in cigarettes including nicotine cyanide and carbon monoxide are toxic to a woman's eggs and speed up the rate at which those eggs die off even if you don't smoke being around secondhand smoke aka passive smoke could affect your reproductive health this is especially true for women ban smoking inside your home absolutely like oh you cannot be around me in fact you can't even smoke on the porch like get out of here <laughs> like you got to go out in the street uh if you you know gotta smoke you know if you're visiting the residence or whatever but uh thought that was huge um she has this sentence is in all capital letters the key to eating healthy, avoid any food that has a TV commercial. I can only say as someone who's done plant-based eating for, I guess it's almost three years at this point. Where's the time gone? Uh, pretty, I don't think any of the foods that I eat are advertised. I think the closest, the vitamins, I take uh, a whole food plant-based multivitamin and I do see this brand advertised on television, but that's just a recent thing. I've seen like one commercial and I was stunned because <laughs> I'd never see anything like that promoted and the converse of that with children. Oh, that's why I've been saying you cannot have a television in your house. You ban cigarette smoking, you ban television. They promote so much poison food poisoned edible products really how you think it's cookies the Keebler L's uh, Chester Cheetah McDonald's uh, all kinds of fast food subway sandwiches and all their processed meat and cheese uh, it is just one bad thing uh, after another an, after another in terms of pizza galore how much cheese can we stuff down your gullet 
Uh, it's tons of bad foods, uh, potato chips. It is nothing healthy. It's everything to give you cholesterol and have you be full of diabetes and obese and everything else. And then wondering, how did I end up like this? What am I going to do? I got all the comorbidities. Uh, they do not promote healthy, you know, eating and food on television ever, period. Um, when she talked about the Mediterranean diet, I thought that was important. Uh, I'm very familiar with it. Uh, and the thing that I emphasize is that she listed what that consists of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, potatoes, herbs, spices. That's almost the entire diet right there. That's all plant based until you get to the very end fish, seafood, skinless poultry, and even my understanding when you have lists like this with food, especially we're talking food ingredients, or if we're talking science, chemical ingredients, it's generally in descending order in terms of you go from greatest concentration to least. So if that's the way this oper list operates, the thing that would be the base, the majority of what you're eating on the Mediterranean diet is fruits vegetables and whole grains that's a plant-based diet i could eat most of this just leave the fish off at the end you're going to be eating great fresh fruits that are healthy in season great to nourish your body uh, and she even comes back a few uh, a few paragraphs down and she says with all those fish products the potential hitch, hitch is that some sources of fish and seafood are high in mercury which is a concern for the fetuses developing brain in utero they poison so much and have oil spills every other day all around the world you don't have to worry about that for the most part fruits and vegetables oil spills here and there and how much mercury is in this and how much plastic uh, have the fish consumed uh, because they've contaminated and trashed uh, all of the water but yeah leaving the fish out lots of fresh fruits and vegetables and a lot of people have said they think that's what's you know so great about that diet is that you're you are eating so much fresh fruits vegetables nuts seeds all the rest of it that that's what's you know the benefit olive oil i consume that as well um let's see she emphasizes the motion certainly appreciated that as a certified yoga instructor uh, besides helping you manage your weight and stay fit regular aerobic exercise and strength training workouts are beneficial for your reproductive function it's true whether you're a man or a woman skipping down a little bit the most startling finding men who performed moderate to vigorous exercise for 15 or more minutes for 15 or more hours per week had a 73 percent higher sperm concentration than those who got the least amount of exercise admittedly that's a lot of exercise slightly more than two hours per day which is prohibitive for many guys who have busy work schedules um, hey working out pays off certainly you don't have to do 15 hours but she said it seems like the studies show just doing something it seems like you could probably find 30 minutes we can find 30 minutes to watch television we can find three hours to watch TV, 30 minutes, an hour to get that moderate to vigorous activity in. You'll feel better, better reproductive health. Oh, what could be better? And be fit, look better. Oh, what could be better? Uh, let's see. Uh, 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 we talked about stress. Now that uh, I, I guess we talked about uh, the positive stress. 
the small amounts of, of uh, good stress that can allow you to build or what have you. People can think if that makes sense. The negative stress, distress, she says, uh, negative stress can take a toll on reproductive health, possibly leading to hormonal abnormalities, irregular periods and ovulation problems in women and the reduction of sperm quality in men, especially if stress is excessive. Uh, she has a footnote with this one. Footnote six. Another concern is that someone might drink too much alcohol, smoke, overeat or engage in other unhealthy behaviors in an effort to cope with stress overload. These potentially harmful practices could adversely affect reproductive health as well as overall health. I thought that was really important as well. Same type of thing. Non-white people, black people, uh, we don't get encouraged to deal with stress in a healthy manner. Uh, a lot of us don't get time from the plantation to take some days off, to get some mental health days, to go and recoup. We don't have the resources uh, or even are exposed to, hey, let me go take a mental health retreat. Can take two weeks, unplug, fast, eat healthy food, get lots of quality rest, get some exercise, hear the sun come up, get a massage, you know, that sort of thing. Lots of non-white people don't even have access uh, to those sorts of things. That's just let me have some cigarettes and let me get a drink uh, and all that just continues to further erode health, reproductive health specifically, probably not helping with any of the stress either. Uh, let's see. Next, she says uh, 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 social support. I thought that was so important as well. Uh, and even that the system of white supremacy does such uh, tremendous, well, I won't say tremendous, but dastardly work in making sure that that support system has been eroded uh, for non-white people. Uh, she talked about breathing, meditation, yoga, muscle relaxation. Oh, we did all that at the yoga retreat. Uh, let's see. Next uh, for chapter 12, star six one. I'll double check to see if folks have any thoughts they want to get in before we get to the last portion of the reading. Uh, man, Dr. Welsing, the great equalizer. She starts chapter 12, which is titled reducing the chemical footprint in your home. Oh, there was such a great info in this chapter, too. She says, uh, if reading all this information has you nervously wondering if you've got enough ammunition in the arsenal, if you're a man like really? That metaphor for a gun, bullets, semen, the great equalizer, Dr. Welsing again. Uh, next, she says uh, she encourages buying organic to try to reduce the chemical overload. I have been buying uh, organic uh, for years, pretty much the entire time that I have been plant based. Uh, and it can be a little bit more expensive. But as she said, just trying to do the best you can to lower the chemicals and toxins that you're putting in your body. Uh, Dr. Ruby Lathan, she's been with us many times. Uh, I forgot which one of the visits, but one specifically, she talked about this exact information. Uh, if you are in an environment where they don't have tons of organic, or if you just can't afford to buy everything organic, I totally feel you. They have the dirty dozen clean 15, where you can really maximize certain things. You would just never like grapes, strawberries, cherries, kale, spinach. She listed quite a few of them. You just never, never, never buy those uh, unless they're organic because they leach in so many of those chemicals. So I just never buy like if I can't get organic strawberries, I don't buy them. Even if they're, you know, a couple dollars extra. Those are the ones that you get. 
avocados. They're on the clean 15 list. Uh, so if you don't want to buy everything organic, you can get uh, avocados. I think pineapples too were on that list, uh, but it's all listed. It's online. You can check it out. Super easy way to uh, save money, but I definitely think it's worth the investment to get uh, organic produce from reputable sources that you can trust. Right. Uh, let's see. She says ban plastic from the microwave. I don't use a microwave. Um, I think from at minimum the time that I went plant based about three years ago and even before that, no microwave. The, uh, when my residence flooded and I was in the temporary flood location for 17 months, uh, there was a microwave there. I don't think I used it at all. I think I may have occasionally used it to like warm water. Like you can just put a, a, a cup of water in a glass of water in for like 30 seconds and heat it. But like other than that, not anything, no reheating, you know, food, meal, nothing of the sort. Uh, I would say don't use a microwave at all. They have lots of other options that are great, uh, that are healthy where you're not, you know, doing anything weird uh, to your food. You can just have better, op better reheating options and where it tastes better. I don't even think food tastes uh, as good when it's been microwaved. Uh, you can have a toaster oven. I use my uh, air fryer. I uh, can do wonders with reheating where you don't have to turn on the oven or the stove top and it will taste great as opposed to the microwave, which just dries everything out. But at minimum, if you are going to use the microwave, maybe reduce it. And then as she said, no plastics in the microwave. Um, let's see. Uh, prepare meals at home. Some of this stuff is just simple. And I think there's a moron who says sobriety would be best. And then the same moron, he'll come back and say things like try to eliminate eating out if you can. Exactly what she said here. I know. And I thought this way too. everybody for the longest like that is affluence. Like I am doing it like you other niggas do not have it like me. We are going to Cheesecake Factory every day. We are going to Papa Do's every weekend. Benihana every other weekend. You know, we are doing the chef just going out to eat, going out to eat, going out to eat. And all of that processed food, all of that packaging, even if they were in plastic gloves, as she said, the way to reduce all of that, eat at home, not to mention like all those opportunities for race soldiers to tamper and put this in your spinach and everything else. Prepare your own food and less processed when you do prepare fruits, everything that was mentioned in that Mediterranean diet. You can just go get all that stuff where it's not in plastic packaging and all the rest of it. You don't have to worry about things leaching into your food. She talked about that before with not going to family dollar or the dollar store, because who knows uh, what's in the packaging and all that leaching into your food. Same thing. So going and getting fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, rice, things of that nature, natural whole foods, you are cooking it. And she even talked about the cooking and, and like she hit all of my like, Oh, she is in my sweet spot. She is hitting me where I live. I raved about cast iron when we read Nutricide, worst book ever, Dr. Layla Africa. That was when I got my cast iron. It's been almost two years. I have a whole cast iron set. There's no reason uh, that you can't switch over to cast iron. 
it's super inexpensive. I don't think you could get cheaper uh, cookware. You could get used. It lasts forever. You could go to the freaking flea market or yard sale and find someone who's getting rid of their cast iron and just, you know, pay them five bucks and probably get the whole set. Uh, clean it, put a little elbow grease in, clean it, season it, and you have the most durable cookware ever that is totally safe. And many people are iron deficient. Uh, so some of that, uh, the iron from the pot will leach into your food, which is great uh, because unless you, I think they said, unless you're a child or an older person with some sort of medical condition, which is, you know, really rare, very small percentage of the population. Most people or uh, a number of people end up having uh, some sort of iron deficiency as opposed to a problem uh, with iron cast iron great nothing toxic lasts forever non-stick just gets better with age i'm a huge cast iron love 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 my cast iron and it's inexpensive like no reason i also love a good stainless steel pot as well uh but definitely check what you use in your uh kitchen uh, to try to minimize the uh, toxins in your home as best you can as well uh let's see Leaving your shoes at the door. It's another one. Uh, I've been doing that for some years. It took me, I guess I was resistant at first to doing it. I guess when I lived on the East Coast, I don't really remember anyone taking their shoes off at the door. Just. Yeah, I don't remember anybody anywhere that I lived uh, on the East Coast. I don't remember anyone doing it. it wasn't until I came to the West Coast where people had shoe racks like outside their front door and. You know, please had signs up sometimes to take your shoes off before you enter the residence. But I am a huge. It is amazing just the amount of debris. I don't care what kind of rug you have at the front and all the rest of it. Like there's just it is amazing the amount of stuff that gets tracked in. I hadn't even thought of, you know, walking through all the areas with all the pesticide and weed killer and everything else uh, that is getting on your shoes. And then that being tracked into your I hadn't even considered that. So, yeah big advocate of no shoes in the house uh plastic bags just by virtue of me living in glorious seattle they have uh, almost a total uh plastic embargo in seattle once you enter seattle proper uh, they have no plastic bags at the grocery stores you can't even get a plastic straw in seattle plastic silverware like if you go out to restaurants and things they don't have plastic silverware it's uh compostable <laughs> silverware and all the rest of it so yeah no uh i think you might you would you would struggle i think some of the restaurants maybe have plastic but there we are again with why you should eat at home so your food is not in contact with all that plastic uh let's see and in fact i was gonna say they do have plastic bags but in terms of the actual containers I don't even think most of the restaurants here have plastic containers anymore. They have compostable uh, containers that the food is actually in. So, yeah, in the Seattle area, less and less plastic. Um, super green here. Uh, okay. Filter your drinking water. We talked about that a lot in Harriet A. Washington. A terrible thing to waste. Uh That is amazing. She she said uh, she talked about the study that showed how quickly some of the chemicals can be uh, eliminated, uh, where she said uh, where children, if they when they were eating out, right, going out to eat and 
whatever that means, McDonald's and all the rest of it, when they started eating at home, it showed an immediate drop in the amount of chemicals that they were secreting in their urine, bodily waste. Uh, eat at home. Eat at home, uh, again, just for so many reasons. Uh, not just eating at home, but plant-based meals, those fruits, vegetables, not having television on, so you're not getting processed, all the yin-yang. And I mean, you could even be plant-based and eat lots of processed foods. They have all kinds of vegan Cheetos and, you know, all the rest of it. You could eat a lot of goofy stuff there too, but non-processed whole foods, fruits, vegetables, things you can pronounce. She talked about that too, reading the labels. What is in this? Can I pronounce this? You know, is this going to kill me? Have they done studies on this? If you have to do all that about the chemical, you probably shouldn't be eating it to begin with. Read the labels. People got all their cell phones. She said that too. You can scan the labels. Make sure I didn't miss anyone. So we get to the stretch here. Uh, the caller at 1159. Did you have commentary you wanted to get in before we get to uh, our second audio segment? 1159. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, callers and listeners. Um, on page 22 of the Eisen paper, she has the reality and comprehension diagram. And, and, and that's what I thought about hearing about um, um, the author talk about the poison that's in everything, the toys, food containers, the food itself. Now, like, wow, this is, um, this is really tough uh, maneuvering this system and, and trying to... Um, reduce the amount of poison one is exposed to. Really, really um, complicated. And, I, and that's exactly how a racist man and, and racist woman wants it. I'm, I'm thinking about um, the toys. Um, I, I, I'm often seeing um, small children and babies, like, putting um, plastic in their mouth, essentially, putting toys in their mouth, plastic in their mouth. And I'm wondering, is, is that, could that be contributing to their... Um, to uh, our um, condition of being um, super unhealthy and, and um, retarding us further, and um, yeah, it's, it's just it's just a lot. This is um, this is ridiculous. How amazing of a job that they've um, done um, chemically uh, waging this chemically waging warfare against us um, and, and all areas of people activity. Um, they got they got locked down one hundred percent, and. Um, these these moms would like to know um, what what do you do about your water? Um, how, how do you get your water and whatnot? Uh, generally, well, I have a filter, um, a zero. I think it's called the zero filter, um, where she has a little reservoir and just filter it out. Um, I think it tastes great. I've been a big fan of it. I've been using the same type of filter for about a year or so. Um, I think it would be better to have an uh, osmosis filter. Uh, like if I owned the house where I was at now, that would be, I think, a better way to go as opposed to just buying uh, filters and then replacing them uh, to just get an osmosis filter on the water at your residence. Um, that water tastes pretty good. It's supposed to do a great job of getting all of the things that she's been talking about here, or at least most of the major ones, lead and all the rest of it. Um I don't think it's super expensive, especially, I mean, when you factor it, like you don't have to buy any more filters, but personally I've been using, uh, I think they're called zero. I'll have to double check on the name, but if they zero filters, uh, for my water at the residence, uh, if I'm out and about, I will get bottled water. I know that's in plastic. She talked about that, uh, here. I do not have a, um, 
like stainless steel water bottle. Those are super popular here, uh, as well as the glass ones. I do not have one of those. Um, but yeah, I have a filter at the residence and uh, should probably work on getting a, a healthier bottle to, to tote around. Um, thank you. And um, in regards to the, um, the, the working out, I, I've, um, I've learned that um, uh, for me personally, uh, the, the, the incorrect feelings I'm, I feel when I um, get being in a system of white supremacy, a lot of that is um, countered by um, working out. I work out about um, 30 minutes a day, either twice a day or um, just once a day for either six days out of the week. And what I do is not something, it's not too crazy, it's just a, a high-intensity workout um, for eight minutes, and then I'll just lift weights and do push-ups for the um, rest of the um, 20, 22 minutes. And I, 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 I found that to be really uh, constructive for my um, mental well-being as well as staying, uh, keeping my weight um, fit. Very important. She talked about that as well, uh, being at a correct body weight uh, for fertility and, and moving around. You'll have healthy, healthy uh, quality sperm, more mobile sperm as well, getting that exercise in. Uh, so absolutely all of us should be uh, doing that. And then as well for the children, what toys they have and uh, what furniture is going to be in their room. I think that's really important as well. So. Uh, that's why I said it's so much to think about, like to make sure that we have non-toxic toys and non-toxic furniture options for the child as well, because you know what's going in their mouth. So many things to think. And I, I think that came up in a terrible thing to waste as well with some of the goofy toys uh, and things that she talked about being poisoned. So lots of overlap uh, between those two books specifically, Harriet A. Washington, A Terrible Thing to Waste. Shauna Swan, Countdown. Uh, we will wrap things up right here. Uh, if you have additional comments, didn't get to share, uh, just jot down a note uh, and we will have ample time once we are done. We'll go ahead and get to the second audio segment. This is Shauna Swan, Countdown, The Conclusion. Revamping the regulatory rigmarole. In the United States, Changing the regulatory mechanisms, including identifying and banning chemicals that are proven to be dangerous, is an exceedingly onerous process, and considerable harm can occur while regulatory agencies are figuring this out. Still, it's certainly worth the effort to change them, because the health, vitality, and longevity of the human race and the planet depend on it. This is one of the reasons why scientists, environmental activists, health experts, and others are increasingly calling for implementation of the precautionary principle in public health and environmental decision-making. The precautionary principle shifts regulatory action from initiating damage control after a problem has been identified to taking anticipatory action before damage can occur. This is what we need to protect public and environmental health. A consensus statement from the 1998 Wingspread Conference, which included treaty negotiators, activists, scholars, and scientists from the United States, Canada, and Europe, summarizes the principle this way. 
When an activity raises threats of harm to human health or the environment, precautionary measures should be taken even if some cause-and-effect relationships are not fully established scientifically. A consequence of the precautionary principle is to shift the burden of proof of safety from the public to manufacturers. It also eliminates the need to wait for scientific certainty to take protective or preventive action. In some cases, strong suspicion may be enough to prevent potentially harmful chemicals from being used in everyday products. If we were to apply the precautionary principle to endocrine-disrupting chemicals and other toxic chemicals that are likely culprits in the sperm count decline and the impairment of male and female reproductive development, human beings would face far fewer detrimental exposures on a daily basis. What we really need is for the chemical industry to adopt its own version of the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. In the European Union, a good regulatory model called REACH, short for Registration, Evaluation, Authorization, and Restriction of Chemicals, already exists. With a policy of no data, no market, the REACH regulation places responsibility on industry to manage the risks from chemicals and to provide safety information on the substances. REACH was put in place in 2007 with the goal of providing a high level of protection for human health and the environment from risks that can be posed by chemicals. It also places the burden on companies. Manufacturers are held responsible for understanding and managing the risks associated with the use of their chemicals in everyday life. In my opinion, Testing chemicals for hormone-disrupting potential before they come to market should be required throughout the world. Under REACH, manufacturers and importers are also required to gather information on the properties of their chemical substances and to register the information in a central database that's maintained by the European Chemicals Agency. Though it's moving more slowly than health and environmental groups had hoped, REACH is reducing threats to human health from chemical production in the EU. For example, the REACH dioxin strategy, which has the goal of reducing the presence of dioxins, furans, and PCBs in the environment, has been successful. By 2014, it had achieved a reduction of industrial emissions of these pollutants by about 80%. One hope is that REACH will help eliminate the unfortunate practice known as regrettable substitution, swapping in an untested compound with the function and risk of a known hazard. Consider the case of BPA and its replacements. As you've heard, BPA is a chemical that has been used in cash register receipts, polycarbonate water bottles, and the linings of food cans. It was first found to mimic the female hormone estrogen when it was formulated in the 1930s, and we now know that it has adverse health effects, including increasing the risk of breast cancer, recurrent miscarriage, behavioral problems in boys, and in male BPA-exposed factory workers, impaired semen quality. While the European Union has banned BPA in baby bottles and is phasing it out of cash register receipts, it is still extensively used in other products, including the lining of food and beverage cans. 
Scrambling to find replacement chemicals, manufacturers discovered that the easiest option was to switch to another closely related bisphenol, such as bisphenol S or bisphenol F. Problem solved, right? Not exactly, because researchers are now finding that many of these BPA replacements end up in people's urine samples around the world and that these replacement chemicals are also hormone disruptors and convey the same risk as BPA, or perhaps an even greater risk. In other words, one harmful chemical was simply used to replace another, an unacceptable practice. When I spoke to Nina Reinecke, head of science for ChemTrust, a leading nonprofit organization working on the EU's REACH chemical regulation in the fall of 2019, she confirmed that despite the passage of REACH legislation, regulators are not yet controlling the use of regrettable substitutes, even in the EU. It shouldn't be this way. As Joseph Allen, an assistant professor of exposure assessment science at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, wrote in a 2016 opinion piece for The Washington Post, Innocent until proven guilty may be the right starting point for criminal justice, but it is disastrous chemical policy. We need to recognize regrettable substitution for what it is, repeated substitution of toxic chemicals with equally toxic chemicals in a dangerous experiment to which none of us knowingly signed on. I agree with him a thousand percent. We are all essentially unwitting participants in a chemical game of reproductive Russian roulette because regulation of the chemical and manufacturing industries continues to operate on a business-as-usual basis, with chemicals considered safe until they're proven guilty. The chemicals I'm most concerned about are stealth chemicals, phthalates, BPA, fluorinated compounds, and PBDEs, because they enter our bodies silently secretly, and without our knowledge. Unlike drugs, which are monitored for safety by the FDA and sold with detailed warning labels, environmental chemicals are largely unregulated and few are identified on labels. Back to the drawing board. A critical step toward eliminating EDCs from our daily lives is to create newer, smarter chemicals, such as those promised by green chemistry. This field embraces the overarching goals of developing more resource-efficient and inherently safer molecules, materials, and products. To achieve these goals, chemists must be able to assess potential hazards of the chemicals they develop. First and foremost of these goals should be avoidance of endocrine disruption. One novel approach that looks particularly promising is known as the Tiered Protocol for Endocrine Disruption, TYPED, which applies principles and tests from the environmental health sciences to identify potential endocrine disruptors. Formulated by a team of renowned scientists from multiple disciplines, this protocol is designed to help chemists identify and avoid chemicals that are likely to disrupt the human endocrine system. Through this system, chemicals that are identified as potential EDCs can then be removed from product development or redesigned to avoid the identified mechanisms of EDC action before these products enter the marketplace. 
By facilitating early identification of EDCs, TIPED's ultimate goal is to reduce the environmental and public health risks from these chemicals. This is certainly a step in the right direction, especially for detecting adverse effects from exposure to low doses or concentrations of these chemicals. The notion that the dose makes the poison is a core but outdated assumption that underlies traditional toxicology. This assumption is credited to Paracelsus, a Swiss physician, alchemist, and astrologer who, nearly 500 years ago, expressed this basic principle. All things are poison, and nothing is without poison. Only the dose makes a thing not a poison. His idea was that the higher the dose, the greater the adverse effect is to humans and perhaps other creatures. But that isn't always true and we need better testing protocols to tease out risks from both high and low doses. As Terry Collins, Ph.D., a professor of green chemistry at Carnegie Mellon University and a user and proponent of TYPED notes, low-dose toxicity is much more insidious than high-dose toxicity and is the likely cause of much, if not most, of the reproductive damage we are seeing in multiple species. If we can develop more effective testing protocols and better ways to screen chemicals to protect public health, we will have a much better chance of stemming the steady decline in male and female reproductive function that's currently underway. One of the first steps in chemical regulation is to identify the harmful effects of the chemicals in question. Much of the research showing adverse effects of EDCs and risky exposures to lead and radiation comes from animal studies, as you've heard. These early results are then typically followed by studies in humans, at a cost of millions of dollars and five to ten years of research for a single study. In the future, these studies, with both humans and animals, need to be set up in a fashion that reflect how people are actually exposed to these chemicals in real life, because the harm that's detected varies with the dose or level of a particular chemical, as well as the timing of the exposure and the combinations of exposures. We need to keep it real. Troublesome Suppositions and Assumptions The truth is, Current testing protocols are not adequate to protect public health because they make unfounded assumptions about the nature of the risk that EDCs, in particular, pose to human health. Following the dose-makes-the-poison principle, current testing begins at a high, toxic dose and continues at lower doses until a dose is identified at which little or no risk is seen. Then, based on Paracelsus's law, it is assumed that lower exposures are safe and therefore not tested or regulated. This principle underlies most regulations in Europe and the United States, and it's intended to protect people from risks from toxic exposures. Everyone assumes that this assumption is correct, but it misses a crucial part of the picture. In some instances, Exposure to low doses of certain chemicals could be just as risky or perhaps even riskier than exposure to high doses. This can happen when a particular chemical causes different adverse effects at lower and higher doses. For example, 
Thalidomide is a sedative and hypnotic that was used in Europe in the late 1950s and the 1960s until it was discovered that it caused limb malformations, particularly absent or shortened limbs, and that high doses could cause fetal death. If you were doing a study of limb defects in live-born babies following prenatal thalidomide exposure and you were to plot a graph showing the risk of limb defects as a function of dose, at a high dose, the risk would appear to drop. Why? Because at high doses, many of the most affected fetuses will die, and those that survive will have relatively few limb defects. Obviously, this does not mean the drug isn't harmful to human development. Needless to say, death is a sure sign of toxicity. In fact, evidence from decades of research that combines toxicology, developmental biology, endocrinology, and biochemistry has demonstrated that this law of paracelsuses cannot be assumed for EDCs. On the contrary, some chemicals, particularly those that behave like hormones, such as the estrogenic compound BPA, may have even more harmful effects at lower doses than at higher ones. If you make a graph charting risk against dose, the graph, according to Paracelsus, would continue to climb as the dose increases. It's an example of a monotonic curve, meaning one that doesn't change direction. But when lower doses are riskier than higher doses, that line climbs with increasing dose up to a certain point and then decreases. Picture an inverted U. These dose-response curves are examples of non-monotonic dose-response, NMDR, curves. A mouthful of a term, but one that's good to know. Think back to the sweet spot for exercise and fertility that you heard about in Chapter 6. As you saw, reproductive fitness increased with an increasing amount and intensity of physical activity, but after a certain point, it started to be a risk for infertility. Not only was there a point of diminishing returns, but also at some point reproductive harm could occur. So if we draw a curve representing how long it took someone to become pregnant, based on how much she exercises, it might look like the letter U. That's another NMDR curve. In a review of 109 studies on the effects of BPA, published between 2007 and 2013, researchers found NMDR curves in more than 30% of the studies. This suggests that current risk assessment methods, in which supposedly safe exposures to low doses are predicted from high-dose exposures, do not protect the public from potentially risky doses of BPA. In such cases, it is incorrect to assume that lower doses are safer than higher doses, yet this assumption continues to underlie regulatory testing for environmental chemicals. Low-dose safety cannot be deduced from high-dose testing of a particular chemical. Treatment of estrogen-dependent breast cancer by the drug tamoxifen is a good example. In studies of breast tumor cells, it was observed that while high therapeutic concentrations of tamoxifen inhibited estrogen-stimulated proliferation of breast cancer cells, lower concentrations of the same drug actually stimulated breast cancer cell growth in cancers that were estrogen-dependent. 
This is a known phenomenon in cancer therapy, and it's referred to as the tamoxifen flare. In other words, a chemical can cause effects at low doses that don't happen at higher doses of the same chemical, or vice versa. That's why the entire approach to regulatory testing needs to be revamped to protect human health. Beacons of Hope Given the daunting challenges faced by regulators struggling to get testing protocols right and chemists designing chemicals that are endocrine disruptor-free and fossil fuel independent, it's a wonder that there has been any progress at all. But significant steps have been made toward more effective regulations, cleaning up our air and water, and saving many endangered species in the process. For example, as you heard in Chapter 9, the 2018 study of bird decline on farmland also included some bright spots. Due to conservation efforts, populations of wetland birds such as ducks and geese are on the rise. Encouragingly, the population of raptors such as bald eagles, which were close to extinction before the prohibition of the insecticide DDT, is increasing too, thanks to endangered species protections and other federal laws. Previously. DDT made the shells of their eggs so weak that, in trying to incubate them, the bald eagles would instead crush them. By 1963, only 417 bald eagle breeding pairs remained. Following the ban on the use of DDT in 1972, the bald eagles' comeback was spectacular, with 10,000 breeding pairs currently in the lower 48 states. That's a reproductive victory if ever there was one. Other species can be helped as well by the adoption of sustainable agricultural practices that minimize the use of pesticides and offer farmers incentives to set aside land for wildlife. Other species were preserved by the 1972 ban of DDT, the Endangered Species Act, ESA of 1973, or its predecessor, the Endangered Species Preservation Act, 1966. The whooping crane was another, at least partial, success that came from the ESA. Because the millinery industry prized crane feathers as decorations on ladies' hats, these birds were hunted to near extinction, and by 1941, only 16 of these birds remained in the United States. After the ESA became law, the surviving whooping cranes were rounded up for captive breeding. Currently, a few hundred whooping cranes are back in the wild, living in several distinct breeding and migrating populations. Despite these significant advances, we still have a long way to go, and it's critical that these species protection efforts continue and that new ones be introduced. In 2019, the World Wildlife Fund listed 41 endangered species, 18 of which are critically endangered, 19 vulnerable species, and 9 near-threatened species. There is more work to be done. Better Chemical Regulation Almost daily, we hear encouraging news about initiatives that effectively decrease environmental pollutants in the United States and abroad. On July 1, 2020, Denmark became the first country to ban PFAS chemicals from food packaging. PFASs are used to repel grease and water in packaging for fatty and moist foods, such as burgers and cakes.
This is excellent news because PFASs are among the forever chemicals, so-called because they don't break down in the environment. Another example of protective legislation. Hawaii recently passed a law that bans the chemicals oxybenzone and octinoxate in skincare products starting in 2021 because they are damaging to coral reefs, which are crucial to marine and human life. Thanks to legislation such as this, progress is afoot. But again, there's more work to be done. Not many people know of the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, CPSC, a federal agency that was created by Congress in 1972 to protect the public against unreasonable risks of injuries and deaths associated with consumer products. The CPSC has jurisdiction over thousands of types of consumer products, and the Commission has been investigating various risks from phthalates in these products. As part of that investigation, the Commission formed a Chronic Hazard Advisory Panel, CHAP, which examined the health effects of phthalates in children's toys and childcare items and brought in researchers whose studies looked at health risks from phthalates. In 2015, I presented results of our studies on phthalates to the Commission. Two years later, the CPSC determined that eight phthalates cause harmful effects to male reproductive development and banned children's toys and childcare items that contained more than a minimal amount of these phthalates, 0.1%. A short-term ban was already in place on three phthalates in children's toys and childcare products, thanks to the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act of 2008, the 2017 ruling made that ban permanent and expanded it. And yet, other, newer hormone-altering phthalates remain on the market. Around the world, different countries are stepping up their efforts to limit environmental damage and reduce humans' exposure to EDCs. Costa Rica, which is among the top five countries leading the way with renewable resources, has made a commitment to become single-use plastic-free and to derive all its energy from non-fossil fuel sources by 2021. Pakistan has moved to ban single-use plastic bags. And Australia has come up with a way to decrease the entrance of plastic and other garbage into the oceans. The city of Quinana recently installed a filtration system on the outlet of drainage pipes that catches all the large debris, thus protecting the environment from garbage and plastic contamination. When the net is full, it is picked up and emptied into special trucks. Having less plastic in the environment will automatically reduce the presence of some EDCs that could imperil reproductive health for all living creatures. Some businesses and retailers are also helping to reduce consumers' exposure to harmful chemicals. For example, Wegmans is a grocery store chain that I loved shopping at when I lived in Rochester, New York, from 2005 to 2010. When the store's management read in the local paper about the work I did on phthalates while I was at the University of Rochester, they asked me to talk to their buyers about phthalate-containing products. After I met with them, the store flagged phthalate-free products on their shelves so consumers could find them easily. Interestingly, Walmart, the largest discount retailer in the world, has developed lists of chemicals it wants phased out of products they carry, lists they share with suppliers. Unbeknownst to many, 
Walmart supports a large sustainability program focused on three areas, food waste, deforestation, and reducing plastic waste. Recently, the Home Depot, the largest home improvement retailer in the world, announced that it will no longer sell carpets and rugs that are treated with perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances in Canada, the United States, and online. An increasing number of eco-friendly manufacturers have contributed to the worldwide effort to reduce EDCs and other toxins in our daily lives, sometimes under the umbrella of Corporate Social Responsibility, CSR. One of the earliest and most effective promoters of CSR is Patagonia, a company that since 1973 has specialized in outdoor apparel and is still owned by its founders, the noted mountain climber Yvonne Chenard and his wife Melinda. For most of the company's existence, it has been pioneering efforts to steer the clothing industry in a more sustainable direction. In 2010, Patagonia helped found the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, an alliance of companies from the clothing and footwear industries whose members are working to make more sustainable decisions when sourcing materials and developing products. The point? It has become increasingly apparent that there is social, economic, and environmental value in investing in sustainability. Each year at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, the world's most sustainable companies, the Global 100, are chosen from a list of about 7,500 companies, all of which generate more than $1 billion in annual revenue. This list ranks corporations on their performance in reducing carbon and waste production, their gender diversity among leadership, revenues derived from clean products, and overall sustainability. An increasing number of global companies are recognizing that incorporating sustainability into corporate values is good business. What's needed now is a broader recognition that sustainability must include the development of products that are not toxic, not hormonally active, and not bioaccumulative, meaning they don't accumulate in the tissues of a living organism. We as consumers should support sustainable product development and sustainable investing by companies with our spending habits. It's true that human beings created these toxic chemicals and unleashed them into the world. We also have the power to mitigate or reverse them. While we've started to make progress on this front, we need more initiatives like the ones you just heard about, and we need them to be implemented faster. It should be the government's responsibility to require pre-market testing of these chemicals and to monitor companies' compliance. Right now, the onus is on us as consumers to take the right steps to protect ourselves, but it shouldn't be. We need people around the world to cast their votes for leaders who will make it a priority to ban harmful chemicals and industrial practices that poison the planet. The status quo has persisted for too long, and it's endangering the reproductive health and survival of human beings and other species. The time to correct course is overdue, and more important now than ever. I see this as both a scientific and a moral imperative, because otherwise, we and other species could end up marching toward the brink of extinction or obsolescence. Conclusion
As science fiction writer Isaac Asimov noted, the saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. Admittedly, he wasn't talking about EDCs, lifestyle habits, or reproductive health, but the quote is certainly relevant to these issues. As you've seen, numerous damaging forces are contributing to the dramatic decline in sperm counts in Western countries and the alarming rise in reproductive health problems in men and women. Many of these trends have occurred at approximately the same rate, 1% per year, which can hardly be a coincidence. We're not alone. These influences have also been poisoning other species and the ecosystems that we share. As a species, we're failing to propagate and repopulate ourselves, and we're hindering the ability of other species to do so. We're increasingly recognizing these realities, the knowledge Asimov alluded to, but we haven't gathered the wisdom necessary to make changes that would put our futures back on a healthier course. Consider this book a rallying cry for raising awareness about these issues. My hope is that you now feel inspired to take notice of the potentially harmful lifestyle and environmental influences in our modern world and to take action in whatever ways you can to reverse, reduce, or counteract these damaging effects. We can no longer afford to behave as though it's business as usual. The canary has sung, loudly, clearly, and shrilly. Now it's up to us to heed the message and take steps to protect our legacies. We need to upgrade our health habits and become more mindful about the items we choose to use or bring into our homes or workplaces. Problems with sperm count and quality can sometimes be turned around when men improve their lifestyle habits or reduce their exposures to toxic environmental influences, as you've heard. While women don't have as much of an opportunity to hit the reset button on their reproductive health, they can sometimes improve the regularity of their menstrual cycles and ovulatory patterns and enhance their fertility with their eating and exercise habits in particular. And of course, Women can play a tremendous role in safeguarding their babies in utero, which can have positive effects for subsequent generations. We should also concentrate on cleaning up the messes we've made in various ecosystems. Species are interdependent, so reversing damage to one habitat can have a positive trickle-up effect from one species to another. A case in point, in the fall of 2019, a report emerged about coral gardeners slowly restoring Jamaica's undersea rainforests and the dazzling diversity of life they shelter. As the Washington Post reported, after several natural and man-made disasters in the 1980s and 1990s, Jamaica lost 85% of its once bountiful reefs. Meanwhile, fish catches declined to a sixth of what they'd been in the 1950s, pushing families depending on seafood closer to poverty. Now, the coral and various species of tropical fish are gradually reappearing, thanks to the conscientious efforts of humans. As Stuart Sandin, a marine biologist at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, California, said, when you give nature a chance, she can repair herself. Personally, I believe the same is true of human beings. It's a mistake to underestimate the power of human ingenuity. 
Humans are remarkably resilient and resourceful creatures when we set our minds on the right goals. We've accomplished amazing turnarounds in the past. Eradication of smallpox and polio in the United States. Improvement in air quality throughout the country since passage of the Clean Air Act in 1970 and the successful cleanup and environmental restoration of the Great Lakes region's most heavily polluted areas since the 1980s. Between 1976 and 1991, lead levels in human blood dropped by 78%, mostly because 99.8% of lead was removed from gasoline and lead was eliminated from soldered cans. I believe we can achieve similarly remarkable reversals when it comes to the effects of EDCs on reproductive health. To take the next steps that are needed throughout the United States and the world, we need to share information about the dangers of endocrine-disrupting chemicals and why it's important to get them out of our environment. Surprisingly, when I ask, even at scientific meetings, how many people know about endocrine disruption, the number of hands that are raised is still discouragingly small. This information can and should be made part of middle and high school science programs, as well as medical school curricula. That type of knowledge dissemination will make it more likely that at some point in the future, your physician will routinely provide you with up-to-date recommendations on products and practices that are found to be risky and ways to assess the safety of your environment. We need to increase awareness of the importance of reproductive health for our own sake, our offsprings, and the health of the planet. Sadly, reproductive health is the poor stepchild of medical research. The National Institutes of Health has 27 institutes that fund studies on a wide range of diseases, cancer, diabetes, allergy and infectious disease, dental and craniofacial diseases, and even aging but not reproduction. The closest the NIH comes is with the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, which supports research on birth defects and maternal mortality, but not sperm decline. Despite these gaps in research, knowledge, and action, I do think it's possible for us to fix what threatens and endangers human life, and here's why. We've made huge strides in understanding how exposure to everyday products can damage our hormonal systems. We now understand the exquisite sensitivity of the fetus, something that was undreamed of when the fetus was believed to be protected by the placenta and the womb. We know that all of us, including newborn infants, are continuously exposed to more than 100 chemicals, which have the ability to profoundly alter basic biology. And we know that the archaic beliefs underlying much of chemical regulation don't protect us. Scientific skepticism aside, I remain cautiously optimistic about our collective future. I have to. I've spent most of my professional life trying to figure out how our environment can interfere with such basic functions as conceiving and delivering a healthy child, and how we can protect ourselves. Unfortunately, in the past, after writing and speaking to other scientists about my research results, I felt that the people who could make a difference still weren't hearing my message. True, the unexpected tsunami of interest in my colleagues' and my 2017 sperm decline meta-analysis was encouraging. 
It felt to me that finally scientists, journalists, and the public were taking this threat seriously. But even a huge number of hits and citations can quickly be forgotten, as attention moves on to the next exciting scientific finding. The good news is, we're finally getting some of the answers we need to protect human reproductive health, as well as that of other species, which is why I've written this book. It's clear that first-generation chemicals that were produced after World War II haven't been good for our species or the health of the planet. What the world urgently needs is a new generation of chemicals that can be used in everyday products without threatening our health or that of future generations, other species, and the environment at large. This is a watershed moment, a point at which we have enough data and sufficient motivation to make at least some changes that are necessary to stop that 1% effect from continuing, at least at the same rapid rate. But there are still plenty of unanswered questions. When I present the sperm decline data, I'm often asked, how long can this go on? Is it getting better or worse? Can sperm count recover? As a scientist and a statistician, I can't speculate, but I can look to the past for patterns. I'll be honest, right now I don't see signs of the decline leveling off but I do think that a diminished sperm count can be restored. After all, men whose sperm were totally wiped out by DBCP went on to father children when they stopped working with the pesticide. That's encouraging evidence right there. By eliminating our exposure to other chemicals, I suspect similar reproductive recoveries can be made. Still, the ultimate question to me is, how can we limit or prevent risky exposures from previous generations from being passed on to the developing fetuses in future generations? What people can do about their own exposures is the relatively easy part. But how we could potentially limit the intergenerational effects is the stuff of future science. My hope is that we'll eventually figure that out, too, so that we can protect the future of the human race, the planet, and our legacy for generations to come. Countdown. How our modern world is threatening sperm counts, altering male and female reproductive development, and imperiling the future of the human race. Was written by Shauna Swan, PhD, with Stacy Colino, and read by Cynthia Farrell, that is all she wrote. Shauna Swan, Count Down. New book uh, next week. This one was a hoot. Uh, very constructive. Um, she teach it in school. She said that herself. Anyway, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh see folks who have their hands up if we did not get to hear from you at all i think there was one person who had a hand up we weren't able to get to during the first segment hand up now we will make sure to get you in before we conclude you can email until justice at gmail.com if you have a final thought on shauna swan's count 
down. Uh, let me get our email concluded. We actually had not gotten as far as I thought, so I'll share it again. From Chapter 13, Implementation of the Precautionary Principle shifts regulatory action from initiating damage control after a problem has been identified to taking anticipatory action before damage can occur. That would seem like the logical thing to do, but yeah. Number two, the dose makes the poison is a core but outdated assumption that underlies toxicology credited to Paracillus nearly 500 years ago. Interesting that suspected racists are using a 500-year-old principle to undergird modern pharmacology. Did they see an advantage to maintaining this principle? Question. Meaning everything can be potentially used as a pharmaceutical. You only have to modify the dose. Hmm. That is something to think about. Uh, using it to their advantage, yes, to their advantage, 500 years later. Uh, number three, he writes, <clears throat> uh, World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, the world's most sustainable companies, the Global 100, are chosen from a list of about 7,500 companies. Ranks corporations on their performance in reducing carbon and waste products, their gender diversity among leadership, revenues from clean products, and overall sustainability, gender diversity, but not racial diversity, is not included in their assessment. I noted that as well. <sighs> what can you do? Uh, conclusion. Number one, this information should be made a part of middle and high school science programs. I completely agree. So does Gus. Uh, Next, this is an important book providing a lot of constructive information. I will keep it in mind when thinking about a variety of issues. Fear of genetic annihilation, population declines, gender fluidity, abortion, talk of war with China, changes in census, demographics, and climate change. How about uh, even the abortion controversy that we're going through right now Supreme Court and all that any thoughts to adding Harriet Washington's latest carte blanche the erosion of medical consent to the book club I did uh, that's my favorite author I guess and I I uh, went back and listened to her talk about both that book and some of her other research I absolutely did uh, spend some time thinking about that um, should we read it uh, in the book club. I don't know if we'll read it next because uh, I got pretty excited about Lucky. So I'm not sure it'll be next. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm certain there's already an audiobook, So I'm always excited about that. And I mean, hey, favorite author. Uh, it's an important tie in. It's something that we've talked about on this program a lot anyway, around sexual intercourse and other matters. Consent uh, and finding ways of you even right now with this vaccine where you can kind of uh, cajole people into doing things. Sometimes that can, if you uh, are in position to punish people for not making the choice that you want, that can erode voluntary consent. So we'll have to see. But yes, not next, but should come up in the book club. Uh, star six one for folks who dialed in. Uh, let's see. Color that we missed totally. Two, two, six, two should be with us if you have commentary as well as our caller in California uh, we'll hit caller 2262 first did you have commentary sir yes sir 
thank you for taking my call, Gus. Hello to everybody on the line. Um, yeah, just a couple observations. Um, one was, um, I guess, the same way you made about the the statement about ammunition, um, I guess referring to sperm as ammunition. I was thinking, um, you know, Dr. Welsing's um, ref- referencing the gun as a comparative to the male, the black male genitalia. That's what it made me think of that. Um, uh, one other thing was um, I, during one of the uh, segments, she said something about BPA-free plastics. Uh, I wasn't sure if that was um, labeled on different um, bottles that you can buy. Um, another observation was the in Eastern European, uh, the sperm rates went down during the summertime. Um, and I was comparing that to her other statement about uh, males in saunas or steam rooms or jacuzzis, the sperm rate go down. But I was thinking um, in Eastern European, the, the um, sperm rate go down in summertime. But what about places that are normally hotter, you know, Africa and the Caribbean and whatnot? Um, she said towards the end, uh, speaking of Isaac Asimov, um, this is an author that made uh, the book I, Robot. Um, um, I think uh, she was kind of foreshadowing um, to maybe non-white people being in a position to, I guess, um, to usurp power. And the reason why I thought that because of Martin Kevorkian's uh, book, Color Monitors, and I think he um, uh, made the observation that in these types of sci-fis, the robot is like the non-white person. Um, and that was pretty much it. Uh, thank you guys for taking my call. I think that's the second time Dr. Martin Kevorkian's Color Monitors has been mentioned uh, this week. He's talking about the Matrix, but uh, yeah, iRobot would be another one. The machines, non-persons are non-white people. The threat of non-white people, yes. Much obliged, sir. Uh, Caller from a block number. Uh, if you had commentary, you should be with us also. Oh, um, hi, Gus. Uh, this is Dracomania. How you doing? Right, poorly. Very good to hear from you. Mm-hmm. It's good to hear from you, too. Um, did you get my... I responded to your um, email. Did you receive it? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah, my hours changed um, for now, so... Um, I was able to call in, and I got an opportunity to um, start listening to this book. I listened to it through the um, archives, and I found it very to be very, very constructive. Um, and um, so I made sure I, you know, uh, to try to catch up and stay on, um, stay on um, updated with the um, book. I made sure I call, uh, you know, listen to it tonight because I had the opportunity to listen to it tonight. So um, what I wanted to um, say in regards to the book is that um, 
you know, she discussed a lot about um, population um, control, basically the population of um, uh, people, but she didn't say the specific people. And we, as you stated, um, we do know the people that population numbers are dropping is um, Caucasian people, um, white people, or um, their numbers are dwindling. And what I was going to say is that um, what they're doing to try to um, counter this is um, now you know they have this uh, they have this big movement uh, with the um, 20 uh, 2045 um, like you say they make plans uh, 500 years ahead so um, they have these um, these plans which trying to where they have it all set up in regards to what the future is going to look like um, in the future and now they have this transhumanism and I and I um, highly suspect that the purpose of this transhumanism movement um, because with um, transhumanism you know you're merging basically with the machine with the robots Um, um, they're trying to make um, human beings a part of um, you know the machines robots and things like that so um, I I suspect that the reason why they're trying to do this whole transhumanism thing um, is because you know um, they're trying to find out a way to keep make you live forever, and these are these are some of the things that they're able to do with this technology. And I think the reason why they're doing it is doing this is because of um, their numbers dwindling. So if they are able to. Um, like get rid of some of the population, the majority of the population, and merge you with um, machines or robots, whatever, um, that would, I think, counter the fact that their numbers are dwindling. That that's just, you know, that's just my opinion. That's what I suspect. I think this is why there's a push for all this, um, you know, technology and for them to go, you know, because they're really pushing for this. I think that um, I would suggest that the listeners – um, pay more attention to um, technology and advances in technology and what they're doing in regards to this, um, you know, this whole agenda that they have with the whole transhumanism thing. Um, they have made phenomenal strides. You would be surprised what they can do with this technology. They have this machine called a digital to bi- uh, biological machine where they can actually literally um, take your um, biometrics from your body and they can um, send it over an internet to show, um, you know, they have all the information about you on the internet. And they they have a machine that can actually um, photocopy your DNA or your DNA and um, make different, I don't know if it's like your uh uh, cells or different body parts, but you need to look into that. It's called digital to biological um, converter. It's an actual machine that they have that can convert your um, biometrics, make a photocopy of it. Basically, it's like a um, it's cloning your um, literal organs in your body and your cells and your DNA. And I, I'm just like, wow, okay. And also um, with the water. Um, I um I have been actually I'm a vegan for like five and a half years. So before prior to becoming a vegan I was doing a lot of research and a lot of this stuff. But the water I um 
I use a water filter, but I, I'm still, um, I buy water from maybe like a Whole Foods or things like that, how they have the high pH or how you can get the um, reverse osmosis water. I get that from them. I still get water from them. I drink no tap water. And even when I get the water, I still um, uh, try to uh, filter it through um do a, a water filter because I'm still um, very um, uh, uncomfortable with drinking. I think even if I had like a water filter um, on my tap water, I still would be skeptical about drinking the water from the tap water. So that's just me. That's just how I do it. I, you know, as a matter of fact, I have to go get some water this weekend. And um, in regards to the heavy, heavy metals and the toxins, um, there are herbs that you can take um, to um, cleanse your system out, to cleanse the toxins. And one in particular, um, well, actually two in particular that I can think of is um, spirulina and um, chlorella. Um, that helps to remove toxins from your body. Um, uh, activated charcoal helps to remove any type of poisoning that you may have in your body. Um, what is it? Um, burdock, burdock root, and um, I think bladderwick. That's good for your um, for also cleansing. So I would suggest that um, the listeners also, you know, in spite of whatever you're eating, because like she said, everything's contaminated. You can only do the best that you can, and you know we're not perfect. But if you can, on top of them, like eating healthy, to also try to cleanse your body out, try to cleanse, use like you know the natural herbs to try to counter. Those are different ways that you can basically try to counter some of these uh, the chemicals. Um, building up into your system and drink, like you said, a lot of water. Drink, drink lots of healthy water, not tap water, not contaminated water, but healthy water. And that's all I have to share. Thank you. Traptomania, much obliged. Drink more water can all appreciate that everything is poisoned but drink more water try as best we can uh to you know cleanse and and not get chemicals and things in there in the first place eating at home is, and all that good stuff as well uh they do have uh water that you can get at a lot of places if you can get a glass jar i know they can be heavy but i do know folks who go ahead and make that investment to get the glass containers uh for the water so you can try and minimize the plastic consumption there as well uh, if you're not going to drink tap water which is totally logical uh, let's see um, other folks anybody else with a hand up commentary they want to get in as we wrap up countdown everybody fine we got everybody Great. Uh, let's see. Uh, I didn't have as many notes on the lower section or the last section. Um, she says, it reminded me so much of Toni Morrison when she talked about uh, they switch out some of the BPAs for a different chemical and it ends up being just as bad or worse. The bluest eye where she says uh, change without improvement came to my mind immediately oh and i think 
the caller who was asking about the BPAs, if you go to purchase like a water bottle or whatever it is, uh, plastic, uh, sometimes it will say often that'll be a major selling point. Uh, if it's BPA free, they'll say that like I've seen water bottles and other products where they'll have that printed uh, and that'll be a big part of their selling point um, that, you know, no chemicals is supposed to be green, that type of a thing. Um, the stealth chemicals, she said that's the ones that she's most concerned about. Uh, phthalates, BPA, fluorinated compounds, and PDEs because they enter our bodies silently, secretly, and without our knowledge, unlike drugs, which are monitored for safety by the FDA and sold with detailed warning labels, environmental chemicals are largely unregulated and few are identified on labels. Uh, I thought that was really important uh, as well, especially because they're so ubiquitous. As uh, Draftomania was just saying, in everything, the air, the tap water, everything, the food that you try to get, every single thing, the carpet on the floor. Uh, let's see. The timing, I thought it was so important when she took all of that uh, time to explain that uh, I forgot the white person's name from 500 years ago uh, with a P, uh, but she said this uh, assumption that the more you are exposed to a chemical, the more dangerous it becomes. Paracelsus, that's it. Uh, she said that's not true, especially some of these endocrine disrupting chemicals. Uh, in some cases, it might be if you're exposed at a particular time that you're sensitive for pregnant moms, the developing fetus, that sort of thing. Or you're exposed to a low level where it's poisonous. And then once it ex uh, increases, it's not harmful anymore. Or it might be the reverse. You would just need a whole different, as she said, paradigm, a whole different way of thinking. And I just I'm reminded of Urugu again, because I think some of this is what she posits about the disruptive destructive nature of what it means to be white they can't be in balance they are at war with nature that's why you would have individuals to make a chemical like ddt and then turn around and use that as a weapon of war call it agent or i mean and just make it clear that's what this is about this is not about uh we are not about being at peace with other people especially non-white people even ourselves other white people and we're not even about being at peace and being custodians of the planet. Plastic and everything, poison and everything, destroy everything. Uh, let's see. But I, I think that's underlying why it's so difficult to get this, uh, these materials changed and underlying even the way that they, you know, would view, you know, how people are impacted by all of this. Uh, let's see. This was one I talk about it all the time uh, where it should be white people identified specifically. She writes because the military industry prized crane feathers as decorations on ladies hats. These birds were hunted to near extinction. And by 1941, only 16 of these birds remained in the United States. Now, that is a disgrace, but that's one white ladies. I don't think in 1941, this is the tacky time they'll use the phrase in Jim Crow South. This is like mm, 15 years, almost 15 years before the lynching castration of Emmett Till. I don't think you had black females in 1941, Alabama, 
buying all of the cream feather hats. I could be wrong. Maybe we got anybody here. If you have a great grandma, great grandparent uh, or someone, if they got any pictures in the family photo album uh, and they got like racks of them, they got, you know, 15, they got a different color for each outfit. <laughs> so if they got that, let us know. But I think this is white ladies nearly killed all the cream uh, cream to accumulate all the cream feathers uh, nearly killed all of the what type of bird is this? I guess they're crane birds. Let's see. The Patagonia, they mentioned them as being one of these environmentally friendly uh, companies. There are so many Patagonia uh, like jackets and their uh, apparel is so popular here. Seattle is all, you know, green this and take care of the environment. We're not going to have any crane feather uh, hats here uh, type of thing. So there are just... Uh, Patagonia jackets all over the place uh, especially it's winter time now they can go skiing and all that good stuff uh, let's see I thought the same thing when they listed the corporations and how they do on gender and other initiatives like no mention of uh, racism white supremacy because that is not the concern and that's another one where I've said throughout the book there's no direct mention of racism white supremacy but I mean if you understand the system that we're in it's so flagrant it's so obvious the places where it is mentioned or where it's mentioned in code like with the population or here where it's not mentioned at all let's see I think that's most of my notes here the conclusion I have to see if there's anything there I think even that, I think the caller, great job, he mentioned iRobot. My suspicion could be totally incorrect. I think many white people, they would know, I, they would know that name, Isaac uh, Asimov. He is like one of the most celebrated, this is the book club, he's one of the most celebrated sci-fi authors ever I was going to say a time period but like of all time I think he has like sci-fi awards and things named after him in addition to uh, Will Smith getting jiggy in uh, iRobot super popular film I think came out in like 2005 almost 20 years my goodness um, but super popular film <clears throat> I think and then the, the listener so astute uh, he mentioned uh, Dr. Kevorkian I think typical individual classified as white, they would do their brain computer would deconstruct all of that. Even in, in this book, talking about population and white genetic annihilation and fertility numbers, I think the typical white person, I think, would catch that like, hmm, Asimov, iRobot the threat non-white white genetic annihilation again uh, and the robots are going to take over and the robots are supposed to serve us the machines they're supposed to be doing our bidding as opposed to that they're taking over and you know threatening to wipe us out I think they would especially to have that be in the conclusion like that's something that you would be kind of taking away at the conclusion of the text I could be totally incorrect, but I mean, I was thinking that before the listener even said that we know I'm certain uh, folks who listen to the cows have heard Dr. Martin Kevorkian and what have you before, but just uh, 
if you're not confused about racism, white supremacy, you might process information a little bit differently. And white people are not confused. In fact, if we speak to Dr. Kevorkian for The Matrix, I'll have to ask him, does he think a white person reading a sentence or even having a reference to that author in a book about this subject matter, does he think their mind might be tugged in that direction? We'll see. Anything else? I definitely think victims of racism, she writes, we need to upgrade our health habits and become more mindful about the items we choose to bring into our homes, our workplaces, problems with sperm count and quality can sometimes uh, be turned around when men improve their lifestyle habits or reduce their exposure to toxic environmental poisons. I'll stop there. <clears throat> I thought that was so important with diet. She talked about that. Eating out. She talked about that. Alcohol, smoking, so many different things. Just becoming aware can make better choices. Even a lot of the household uh, components. A water filter, that's not that big a deal. As I said, switching to cast iron, that's not that big a deal. She mentioned cleaning products, uh, the cosmetics and things in your bathroom. That's one that's <laughs> so in vogue uh, out here in the Seattle area and I think in a lot of other uh, different groups uh, where making your own chemicals like self-care products, hair care products and what have you. I know there are tons of uh, YouTube videos and what have you, the DIYs where you can make you know skin creams and lotions and soaps and shampoos. That might be worth time and energy. That could be like a family project, counter racist project to be healthy. Uh, and to not be bringing all those chemicals into your residence and the plastic. You can have all this stuff stored in glass. Uh, that's an easy one. I have glass uh, containers, too. Those are really cheap. If you have like plastic food containers, really cheap and easy to swap that out. They have all that um, glass lock uh, food containers uh, where, you know, they have different sizes and everything. They're dishwasher safe. Most of them are oven safe, too. Uh, and then you can store your food and not have it touching any plastic. Uh, I know lots of folks uh, are big into, uh, yeah, no plastic, not even using plastic wrap, right? Just all glass containers or aluminum foil. And even some of the folks that I know don't do aluminum either. Uh, no aluminum, just using glass. Uh, parts, you did mention parchment paper uh, as well uh, to cover food, keep it uh, fresh for storage. Uh, I didn't see any other hands. I thought it looked like folks are satisfied. Grand. Uh, I thoroughly, even though I was a little bit surprised, I was not expecting so much like plant-based food and sobriety and cigarettes. So I just, it's a little different than what I was expecting, but I'm very glad that we read this book. Man, I, the Grandcestor. Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. I think she would be pleased that we read this book. I wish, man, I wish we could hear her commentary, but I feel like she spoke so much on this subject matter that, you know, we should uh, at least have some general ideas uh, about, hey, this is right in line with what I've been saying, the motivation, and we heard what they were saying, talking about the increase in populations, uh, sub-Saharan Africa and the like. South Asia, fear, rising t threat 
Uh, was it Lothrop Stoddard, Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, which we also read in the book club? Anywho, we'll be here tomorrow neutralizing workplace racism. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and then the compensatory call in at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific for this Saturday. Uh, much obliged for everyone who tuned in live or archive, hopefully worthy of your time and energy. Uh, with that, man, we should have even more reasons based on what we read in the book club. Sobriety would be best. Pregnant, not pregnant, whatever it is, just for overall health. Drink, and if we could go right in hand, not drinking champagne, beer, liquor, all the rest of it. Drinking more water. In addition to being sober, uh, if you are out and about, somebody is being hostile and loud. Exit. You have no idea if they are armed, if they have an armed entourage at the ready. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and die immediately, exit. Call enforcement officials if you need to as you are exiting the premises. Uh, all of that said, if you're going to be driving, you're sober, you're buckled up, you are not on the mobile phone we need all of our attention to be paying just being mindful about what's happening around us uh, all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim What's brother a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.